The cultists present Cinema of Cruelty. And this week on The Cinema of Cruelty, we ask the question, hey, do you remember that hot minute in the 90s where heroin was super sexy? Where everyone wanted to look like a strung out Kate Moss who would fuck a sleazy dude for a score in their Brooklyn walk-up apartment and pretend they were in a Fiona Apple video? Do you remember when the 90s turned into the 2000s and suddenly intravenous drug use became that thing that would lead to nothing but pain, anguish, amputation, and anal dildos of the dubious consent variety? Yeah, well, we all have Darren Aronofsky to thank for that one. So sit back and grab some juice as we take you through the harrowing and impeccably gel-filtered landscape of Aronofsky's 2000 discordantly melodic opus, Requiem for a Dream. Brought to you by Smiling at the Sun, the addictive properties of, well, everything, that goddamn inevitable downfall of winter, necrotized and yet still pulsating limbs, ass to ass resuscitation, and the otherworldly charisma of the voice of Keith David. And our safe word today is optimism. Anything to add, Benji? I really can't decide if this movie works better as an oddly grim prequel to White Chicks, or a bizarrely gritty sequel to Labyrinth. Are those mutually exclusive options, though? No. No, they're not. You're traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of... Thanks! Boy! I doubt your commitment to sparkle motion. I see you shiver. Well, hello, London. Hello, Benji. I would normally argue that name with you, but I'm going to remain cordial because today we have a guest. That we a do. very special guest for this very special movie. Dr. Michelle Vaughn. Dr. Vaughn, uh, would you tell us a little bit about yourself? <laughs> um, I'm a licensed psychologist. Uh, I did my postdoc in addictions, to be relevant, and I'm also uh, an associate professor of psychology. Yes, and we figured we needed her today. Because what's fascinating about Michelle's relationship to this movie, uh, Michelle, you, you, you made some use of this movie in your classes, did you not? Yeah, I've been, I've been using this in class. And as test questions, <laughs> since about 2011, Excellent. until like a couple years ago. So it's, uh, yeah, I dig it. It's disturbing. I'm all about it. Excellent. Yes, we need, we need you here. Because when I was watching this film, I had a lot of questions about some of the accuracy and what they're taking and whatnot. So we are very glad you're here. And London, how did you first hear about this film? Okay, so I actually can't remember how I first heard about this film, but I do remember that I used to watch it a lot in high school back when it came out of, I was, I think, a freshman. And in researching for this film, I did come across that there was some sort of poll that was put out on Twitter that asked, what is a movie that you find to be a great movie but that you never want to watch again? And Requiem for a Dream won by a landslide to the point that it actually was trending on Twitter in the top 15 hashtags or something for that day. 
I've watched this movie I don't know how many times since the year 2000, and I watched it five times in the last 48 hours to take notes for this podcast. So apparently, uh, Requiem for a Dream has always just been a part of my soul. What about you, Benji? I heard I saw articles about this movie before I ever saw the movie itself that were related to it being released unrated uh, because apparently it was originally rated in C-17 by the MPAA. Aronofsky and company appealed that. It did not go through. And so Lionsgate rather boldly decided, well, fuck it. We're going to release this movie without a rating, which was almost unheard of. Uh, so I remember hearing that. And then I think I first saw it around 2003. And a lame joke I made about the movie when I was younger was that uh, Requiem for a Dream, that's my feel-good movie. And people were like, what the hell do you mean that's your feel-good movie? I would say, well, I feel really good about the fact I'm not addicted to heroin. That's fair. Um, <laughs> yeah, that, uh, I think that's uh, that's younger, younger Ben's uh, humor nowadays, having had a more of a seen a little bit more of like what this film is representing. I don't know. It feels a little wrong to make that joke, but you know, that's, that's the way humor grows uh, as you grow most of the time. If it makes you feel any better, this movie turns me on. So we can get into that later, but I, I, I remember so no emotions related to that. <laughs> I remember so. that being the case in high school and I hadn't seen this movie in a while and I was wondering if it was still the case. And I was like, Nope, nope, this movie still works for me. I'll say this, that like this movie cemented my crush on Jennifer Connelly. And after rewatching it, I am convinced that it is impossible to make Jennifer Connelly look bad. There are so many times she should look bad in this film. It's still like, God damn it, you're gorgeous when you puke. Yeah, no, it's that heroin chic look. It was the thing in the 90s for a reason. <laughs> Michelle, do you remember when you first came across this movie? Um, I saw this in the theaters. Yes, awesome. Wow, not this, easy. Yeah. I. I think based on the timing, so it was like every two or three weeks, me and my grad school friends would go see movies. So I didn't see this with clinical psychologists. I saw it with those business psych nerds. Oh, but we went and nerds. saw this because we're like, it's fucked up. We saw, um, there's another movie I was remembering that came out at the same time with like uh, Katie Holmes that was like a party movie, like some sort of rave or party movie. Go. Go. Yes, yeah. go. I think those were <laughs> in like a year of each other, but I remember seeing this in the theater and I think I, think I drove to... Cleveland to like the art house cinema to see it. And I was like, it's fucked up. This is fascinating and fucked up. And I'm so glad I've never done heroin or any IV use, drug use. And uh, that was yeah. way before I ever worked with folks with mm. <laughs> substance problems. It's true. So, this does tend awesome. to be the movie that actually does what Dare has always wanted to do. It, it gets kids to resist drugs. Plus Jared Leto. Come on. That Jared Leto, though. Back when he yeah. was still... I, that was my first thought when I put that back in. I'm like, oh, back when Jared Leto was still bringing something positive to movies. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, what is the uh, the best thing about this movie, Benji? The best thing about this movie, there's kind of a tie. One On one half, it's the fact that this is a movie that has such a in-your-face, fuck-you attitude about showing... A side of American life that is not explored in cinema just because it's not a sexy thing. It's nothing profitable. It is, it's just, but it's something very real. You know, addiction and feeling that you have no point in life and that you know, society has just looked the other way because you don't matter anymore. And Ellen Bernstein just bringing it as few actors ever have in cinema to portray that. Uh, that's one half of it. The other greatest thing about this movie is Keith David saying, I didn't take it out for air, honey. <laughs> oh, Keith David. 
good. He's so great. What's the worst thing about this movie? The worst thing about this movie is not necessarily something in the movie, but related to it. And that's knowing that Ellen Bernstein lost the Oscar to Julia fucking Roberts that year. Yeah, that's pretty bad. For Aaron Brockovich. Aaron (laughs) Brock, uh, in an acceptance speech that went over time, and she still forgot to thank the real life Aaron Brockovich. (laughs) Yeah, that is a sad and tragic thing. Anyway, London, what is the the best thing about this movie? Oh, there's so many great things about this movie. If I had to isolate just one that is the best, however, I would actually have to say the soundtrack and the sound mixing. I just can't get over how much sound brings to this movie. And sound plays an integral role in a lot of movies. But if this soundtrack was different in any way I don't think the film would have as much of an impact as it did so I do have to yeah give it out to to Clint Mansell and the Cronus Quartet the worst thing about this movie and I've thought about this many times (laughs) is that Jennifer Connelly's storyline didn't go to Jared Leto I feel like Jared Leto should have had Jennifer Connelly's storyline and she should have had his and it would have been so much better because I, I do want to just see Jared Leto selling himself for heroin and ending up to in an ass to ass dildo spectacular <laughs> breakdown at the end would have been so great. And I would have loved to see Jennifer Connelly with an amputation at the end oh, of it. So I just I want I'm replay I'm replaying that scene now at Keith David's like, what you name this son? <laughs> uh, my name's Harry. Ah, Prince Harry. <laughs> Coming into my castle. Yeah, no, that visual has been with me for a while and it doesn't go away. (laughs) I concur. Uh, (laughs) Then I don't even care why, uh, why, uh, oh God, spacing out from my 90s TV show references. So called life? Yeah, why he he can't read. I don't even care why he can't read. He doesn't need to read and he sucks dick that way. Yeah. (laughs) What what many boys must learn is as long as they can suck cock, they don't need to read. So let's let's get into this movie, shall we? All right. How do we start? Okay, so we start with with Tappy Tappy Tibbins, because the film starts with Tappy Tibbins, and the words As more films should. We've got a winner. So really great way to start this film. We've got a winner. We talked about this. Uh, the three of us had discussed this a little bit before this podcast began. That uh, the breakdown today is going to be a little bit different where what I ended up doing while watching this film the four to five times that I did is that I watched the film sort of plain and and straight through and then I had access to a lot of different commentaries so I watched this with director commentary I watched this with the music supervisor's commentary and I watched this with the cinematographer's commentary so I'm gonna be kind of throwing you guys some little notes (laughs) throughout the scenes. And uh, then we're gonna have Dr. Vaughn give us some really great addiction stuff kind of throughout, but she's also really gonna dig into it a little bit at the end. And then Benji is usually is gonna bring nothing to the picture. So we're gonna open with uh, Tappy. And the thing I learned about Tappy in these watchings is that most of his stuff um, was all shot in pre-shots that they got him to set early and they had sort of one single day to just get every sort of ounce of footage that they needed for Tappy. And I guess he just put in like a 19 hour performance in this (laughs) high energy, 
enthusiastic, televangelist, change your life kind of way. And he brought so much energy to the set and people were so enamored by him that at the end, the director kind of heard people talking in the craft service line, like, I wonder if this like 30 day revolution thing actually works. And (laughs) he he converted some people on set. But yeah, Tappy Tibbins is going to be the secular evangelist that's trying to get people their 30-day program to a better life. This is not something that's in the novel. This is something that Darren Offersky ah. brought to the the narrative. In the novel, so I guess we'll also say that uh, this film, for those who don't know, is based off of a 1970s novel by Hubert Shelby Jr. Um, by the same title. He also co-wrote the screenplay and whatnot. But Tappy... Did you read the book? I read the book back in high school when I was going through my Requiem for a Dream sort of stuff, and I don't have a lot of it uh, readily accessible in my mind anymore, but I do know the scenes that were not in it. Uh, so you, you didn't read the book just for the research for this episode? No, I watched this movie five times, man. Nobody's got time to I, read. Okay. No, I just want people to remember that when we talk about other movies that I read the book for to research, because goddamn, some of the books I've read to research, holy Shit. I'm like Jared Leto, okay? I don't need to read because I can do you other things for heroin. <laughs> yes, I will die on that hill. So um, another interesting thing about the Tappy Tibbins character um, is that not only is he not in the novel as a Darren Aronofsky creation, but he's a Darren Aronofsky creation from an unused screenplay of his that is also set in Coney Island in which huh. Tappy Tibbins is a fortune teller that's working on the sort of boardwalk of Coney Island and is really trying to get out of that lifestyle. <laughs> and so out of this character of a, a previously unused script, Tappy Tibbins emerges to fill this role as the show that Sarah watches because in the novel, she mostly just watches sort of soap operas and whatnot. And he didn't want to date the movie by putting something specific in there. So he wanted sort of a timeless feel of these evangelical programs that we can kind of remember from the seventies on. So it sort of creates this sort of timelessness. Also just thematically appropriate, this better you kind of idea. Mm -hmm. This is apparently also the only thing that's ever on TV because it's the only thing that we ever see her watch. Yes. And on the DVD. I don't know. Did you guys watch this DVD or digital? Digital. So the DVD copy and those those great old slowly declining art forms of the DVD screen. When you pop the DVD in, it comes up as a Tappy Tibbins thing. It's got all the infomercial <laughs> stuff, and you can kind of select, like, better you, and, like, play the real, or bonus features <laughs> for more Tappy. And so, like, the entire thing is just Tappy, Tappy-themed. So I, I do like me some Tappy Tibbins. And uh, then it cuts to the opening of the split screen with Harry stealing the TV. Mm-hmm. I don't know what was the first thing that you noticed about this film. Or if you just want me to break it down. <laughs> well, first thing was like, oh, wow, splits, we're starting off in split screen. Okay, cool. And with Jared Leto taking the television and telling his mom, like, mom, you're going to get the money back. And they're up like him and his friend are going to pawn the television. And we have him yelling and mom in the bathroom. And it's split screen action to get both of them on screen at the same time without having to cut back and forth. Yeah, the distancing that's immediately set up is very interesting here. 
I guess another thing that I kind of learned from the commentary here is that Darren Aronofsky grew up in Brooklyn, in the Coney Island neighborhood area. Mm-hmm. And so whereas the book is actually set in the Bronx, Hubert Shelby was totally willing for Aronofsky to relocate to the Coney Island mm-hmm. area, which was very important for him just because a lot of his inspiration and in his artistic works often come from Coney Island, according to him. And so he really wanted to use this television theft to set up the neighborhood. And so if we notice through this opening scene, they get that TV that's still on the little rolling cart, and they're just going to push it through all of these sort of landscape markers that mm. is, or that was Coney Island at the time. Because a lot of those iconic sort of shots are gone now, because Giuliani actually tore down a lot of the Coney Island park. So the roller I'm coaster and stuff that they get a great shot of is not there anymore. So it's kind of like watching films that have the two towers kind of in the background of a Manhattan landscape, like seeing some of those shots of Coney Island is just this sort of nostalgic moment of, I remember when New York looked that way, but it, it doesn't anymore. Yeah. And it's the most ridiculous thing ever that's being shot in the most beautiful way possible, because all of these shots are just gorgeous of Coney Island as they're going down the boardwalk with this, television from 1970 yes this this old little tv that's that's getting rolled and it's taking a while they are pushing all through the credit scenes (laughs) which makes it even more bizarre later when his mother shows up at the pawn shop that they sort of pawn this tv off of for 20 bucks to go buy dope and he opens his little book that has the markdowns of all of the times this TV has been traded and stolen and then paid for again by Sarah. And she pays for the TV and then it cuts. And we're left thinking like, is this poor little old woman going to push that TV all the way back to her apartment by herself that just took these two young men all day to push over to to the boardwalk, so. Poor Sarah. So I have to say, it's poor Sarah. And also, if she's going to go all the way to fetch her TV, why not just give Harry the 20 bucks when he shows up for the TV? And it's like, let's skip this step. Let me just give you money. Mm-hmm. I don't know. but it, It's a complex relationship the son and mother have, to say the least. Yes. So this is apparently something that happens a lot. He steals her TV for drug money. She goes and buys it back. What's the next thing you, you remember from this film? stood out our first note that i took down was just the boy's accent is it good is it over the top i can't tell (laughs) because leto's brooklyn accent is thick in this movie i liked the accent choices he was making Mm -hmm. but i got used to it after a while like at first i'm like what the heck because it's like Really hardcore, like, come on, Ma, you know you're going to get it back. You're going to get the TV back after a while. Come on. And it might just be because I grew up in New York that the accent didn't actually stand out as much to me. So I think that maybe that means that he was doing an all right job, that it didn't bug okay. me. I kind of, it, it sounded familiar. And so, yeah, yeah the, most of the accent patterns I'm familiar with are the New York area. And, and then upstate Rochester has a very flat A accent as well that kind of sounds a little bit like the Bronx. And then, of course, all the Boston accents that I went to school with. So all of those flat A's just kind of go right over my head. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it did kind of really set the scene. 
And since Aronofsky is also from the area, I would have to imagine that if he was going a little too overboard, that Aronofsky would have brought him back. Right? Yeah, I've seen Aronofsky in interviews, and his, he does like have a, that Brooklyn accent too. So I imagine like you know director slash dialogue coach or di- dialect coach. There's also going to be a few scenes with Marlon Wayans and Jared Leto in the apartment getting high. And one thing that stood out to me just randomly that delighted me was Marlon Wayans' dance that he does the first time we're introduced to his character (laughs) within this setting. The the Cronus Quartet music sort of starts filtering in and he does this weird little thing where his quads are sort of bent, but then he's doing this shimmy and he's moving like water and i don't know it's great however he's moving are you gonna tell marlon wayne's how to dance you don't tell marlon wayne's how to it's, dance okay it's perfect i don't know his, his body just moves in a way that's exactly in time with the music which is impressive because the music wasn't there on set so yeah it yeah. just it delighted it has me. to be said right now marlon wayne's is amazing in this film he is yeah um so yeah the sarah goes back and buys her tv and then Marion and Harry sneak up to the roof to start throwing stuff off of it. This is just a pastime, apparently. As you do. And on their way out, they pull the fire alarm because fuck everything. Yeah, also, you know, just fun times, as it were. Sarah is going to get a phone call. That she thinks is a telemarketer. I always love that bit. Where she's like, I, I'm not buying anything. I'm like, no, 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 you've won. I've won? And what has she won? She is. She's got. She could be on a game. Or what is it? Is it got on a game show? I was never really too clear on that because they, the phone conversation is very quiet. I didn't. I should have listened to it more than one time, like you did five times. Yeah. So what you're saying basically is that I put in more effort than you. I am superior <laughs> to you in all ways. I, I hear you. But what she is doing um, is, yeah, she's getting a phone call that is ambiguous in nature as to what show she's going to be on. Although what we're pretty sure the show isn't is the Tappy Tibbins show, which is why it kind (laughs) of gets kind of interesting that she seems to continue to fantasize that she's going to be on Tappy Tibbins when the show she's actually applying for doesn't seem to be the Tappy Tibbins show. So I don't know there. But lighting note for this scene is really cool. So while she's getting this (laughs) phone call, she's got this really hard light on her face. And then she's going to immediately go into her bedroom to try on the red dress that she really wants to fit in by the end of this movie. She will fit into it by the end of this movie. Spoiler alert there. But at the time, she doesn't. But what happens in this room is that it's full of this very natural light that's kind of coming in from the windows. And if you look behind her, the light that is filtering in from the living room is still that really hard light. And it's just a really great choice from the cinematographer to maintain that light consistency and sort of sculpt out the space in that way. Really subtle detail, but that is going to actually remain consistent through the film is that her bedroom is shot in soft light. And if you look behind her, it's always that hard light coming in from the living room because that is the sort of harsher space for her out Uh, there that she sort of sits in. And also just because that's how the light is shot in that one. So you just got to kind of maintain that consistency. The way the red dress is revealed is also, to me, just a wonderful show-don't-tell kind of moment in showing us that this is very important. Like, she pulls it out of a plastic miniature shelf in her closet. (laughs) The dress itself is inside a plastic wrap, so you know, like, this is something sacred that she has wanted to keep safe and protected for a long time. And then when it doesn't fit, oh. 
yes, this is this preserved item that holds a very special place in her life. So this is going to become her raison d'etre, right? To fit into this dress so she can wear it on TV. She gets a diet book from her friends that sit in a line outside of their building in wheelchairs. Such a early pre-hipster gentrification takeover of the Brooklyn area. This is just so spot on. These these little babushka ladies just sitting out in front of their... uh, they're building in I can't remember. Sequence. I saw this long before I ever visited New York, and something about it just said to me, like, well, okay, yeah, that, that's New York. All right, I believe, well, Brooklyn at any rate. Yeah, this is the At thing. this time period. <laughs> these exterior shots of these rad little ladies apparently was one of the, or were, because there are multiple scenes with them, were one of the hardest sets to light. Because even though mm. they are outside... It is mostly artificial light that is happening in this scene. Um, And so they're going to get a gradient filter on there. And if you look really closely at the scenes, you can see the gradient filter where it's actually more shadowed in the corner so that the strongest points of light stay on that line of the women. And it's very, very orange filtered as well. They get kind of that coral filter on there. And this was another thing that we can kind of keep an eye out for throughout the film is that the lighting has very distinct temperature changes through the different seasons. And so it starts out in summer. Everything's going to be very warm and naturally lit. By winter, everything is going to be lit artificially and very starkly. And so the fall is going to kind of mix these color temperatures a little bit together. But they really wanted to make sure that whatever lights they used in summer are just nowhere to be found in the winter. So the production budget for the light bulbs and the gel filters on this film was, I think, one of the most expensive expenditures for the entire thing. Because this wasn't a high-budget film. No, it wasn't, but they spent a lot of money on gel filters. So gel filters are everywhere. And it's pretty great. So yeah, we sign get the sign of a good production is like knowing where to spend the little funds that you have. Yeah, and the the lighting is just really integral here. So yeah, that happens. <laughs> there you go. Uh, we kind of bounce around a little bit. The main thrust with mom is that she's now trying to lose weight. Is now trying to kind of you know get her like get herself to where she thinks she is looking good. Has a friend help her dye her hair in a hilarious moment where. Her hair comes out orange, and she's like, this is red? Yeah, yeah, this is red. If this is red, then what is orange? It's a little orange, yeah. And tells all of her friends she's going to be on TV. Meanwhile, our Harry... Oh, God, what is Marlon Wayne's character's name? Tyrone. Tyrone. Harry, Tyrone, and Marion, they're getting high, and they plan to get their hands on some really good heroin that that they're going to sell and. This is where we start to get a little bit of like what they have going on, that they are going to try to start selling the stuff themselves because they're not making money any other way. This is true. Nor will we see them making money any other way. We do get the sense mm-hmm. that Marion, for a little while, their lifestyle is fueled um, by her parents, who seem to be yes. very wealthy. And so they keep sending her money as long as she stays in therapy. Only problem is her therapist is an unethical sleazebag that also extorts yeah. her for sex. She needs a much better therapist because, you know, the problem is she keeps thinking that when she was a kid, she saw all these monsters and was like, thought like, is that Ziggy Stardust? I think that is, but I'm not too sure. (laughs) 
So yeah, she's kind of she had a messed up childhood. She thought she lost her little brother to mobs, monsters and goblins. Oh, so this you is the labyrinth prequel theory. Um, okay, so how long were you gonna take until you got there? Come on now. And I'm just contextualizing. <laughs> Because you could just be crazy. So <laughs> there are going to be some cool sort of production designs throughout this. Marion and Terry, we get a sense of Marion's apartment that is this big industrial building, big fluorescent lights. I did notice that they had an old printer drawer propped up in the corner of their apartment, which nice. seemed kind of cool, but also like that would be a really great place to store drugs and it wasn't being used for that. It was just being propped up on the side. I'm like, no, that's a great pill drawer. You should get on that. But <laughs> the party that they throw that starts with the scene um, where Marion asks, anyone want to waste some time? Is, <laughs> yeah, that's it's pretty great. And then it's going to cut to a close up insert of her palm and they're going to shake some orange pills out onto it and they're all going to pop one. And on the second rewatch, I just naturally thought that this was Sarah that was popping one of her orange pills and then realized that Sarah hasn't actually gotten her prescription yet. So this is a really, really direct parallel setup to not only are these two people going to develop very similar addictions in practice, the drugs that they're both using actually look almost identical from this scene to when Sarah's going to get her pills. And I thought that was a really cool little detail that I didn't necessarily actually notice on the first view through since Sarah hadn't got her pills yet. And this is also where we get one of the examples of like one of the cultural touchstones this movie gives us is these hip, like I think they kept, like when I was reading about this, it was referred to as the hip hop editing. Yes. Where we get in like close up of an eye dilating, of veins expanding, of something. All these things that show us that they're taking drugs. And I didn't realize this until the very end. Really, there's only one time we ever see like a needle go into an arm in this movie. And it's horrifying when it it's does great. happen. Mm -hmm. Or just a few times, there are a few times where we see people actually popping pills into their mouth. Like anytime that they are going to do drugs, you get these quick flashes. With what I found interesting is they do pieces of it when they have the mother eating, especially with the chocolates. Mm -hmm. It's they don't, you know they don't show her pupils getting blown, mm -hmm. right? But there's this the the brief cut and like you see her. There's a point where she like caresses yes. the open box of chocolates, <laughs> and we're like, oh, we're just we're just into all compulsive things, mm -hmm. right? And like food is initially her kind of comfort, um, but you know she doesn't get like yeah. jazzed up and high. But like, there were some parallels. That I yeah, really it cool. is. It's like when she does mm -hmm. the chocolates, it's like just a very minor thing, mm -hmm. very quick. It's like, oh yeah, that's good. So the movie is just telling us degrees of addiction. Degrees of drug. And the indulgence and whatnot. Yeah. Do you know what orange pill the three of them are popping here, perchance? Well, that's the thing is a lot of times things are manufactured differently for the look. Mm -hmm. But what's classic, because I believe the orange pills is what she's eventually prescribed during the day, like the, the day pills, mm -hmm. and then it gets blue and purple at night. And so if they're popping orange pills, those are really consistent with a basically amphetamines. Mm -hmm. Like that would be super common because they kind of go back and forth. So they're both having a very similar cycle of um, she starts out with amphetamines to lose weight as the primary drug of choice. And then they give her some sort of downers, right? Mm -hmm. I would say most likely probably some benzos. But what they're initially showing folks using is speed. Okay. Right. Cool. Just, that, that's consistent. Yeah. I figured, yeah, it was just like for my own layman mm -hmm. knowledge. I figured, oh, it's probably speed. They're doing. And so. Yeah, everything speeds up when they do it. Yeah, so for the anyone want to waste some time and they're popping some speed, what likely is 
is their their night gonna be like if they're rolling on some speed? <laughs> well, um, usually with amphetamines, I mean, it depends on the strength and the dose you're taking, how long that's gonna last. But yeah, you're likely dialing into several hours or half a day or more. If you're just taking one, mm -hmm. right? But if you're like repeating use, you're, you're gonna be up and sleepless and <laughs> basically acting like you had a whole pot of coffee, which we'll mm -hmm. see added to later. Like I get why um, Sarah yeah. is good for, for speed. I, I've never been mm -hmm. one to understand people popping speed at a party to waste some time. Why would speed be a drug of choice at a young adult party? Yeah. Well, that idea, it would make time feel like it's going faster if you want to increase your energy, right? Mm -hmm. If you want to dance the fucking night away, if you want to fuck the night away, right? And then there's often the cycle of if you're primarily using opiates, you're very slowed down and calm. So it's almost like, I want to be high, mm -hmm. but I want to experience the opposite of that. So that kind of cycle, mm -hmm. which is what the mom gets Sit into. There. So yeah. These kids are mixing it. And the other mm -hmm. thing with this party scene that I found interesting is that the, the fish eye lens is going to be there in the corner. And people are going to start filtering in to Harry and Marion's apartment. And I'm like, wait, they have friends? <laughs> Where do these people <laughs> yeah. come from? Because we're we never, never going to see these friends again. So apparently, <laughs> and not that that isn't common in early 20-something drug culture, where you have the friends that will show up for the parties if you're offering party favors, yeah. and then they'll leave. But it was, it was just kind of <laughs> interesting to open their world there for a brief moment and then kind of almost forget that they might know other people than the three of them. My themselves. speedy sense is tingling. Someone has drugs nearby. Yes. I was like, wait, <laughs> friends? Okay. So that happens. Uh, cuts to the split screen sex or body exploration scene. I love this scene because it's split screen, though it doesn't technically need to be, yeah. but it's still like, oh, that's a fascinating way of doing that. I loved it. it. It is really great. And Aronofsky talks in the commentary about how he really wanted to sort of set up this idea once again of these are two people who are really trying to connect here. And they're just not quite doing it. Mm -hmm. we've, we've got them in their own separate little fragments and they're touching, but there's something disconnected. The cinematographer talked about how this scene was sort of uncomfortable for the actors to shoot, more so than a usual sex scene, because it took all afternoon, apparently, <laughs> that they were just there oh. for a full afternoon, and all they had to do is kind of lie there and touch each other while the cinematographer and his cameraman and Aronofsky are standing there hyper intensively staring at their bodies trying to figure out which fragment like they want to film next sort of saying should we get a shot of his knee like should we get a shot of her inner elbow and so it was this interesting breakdown of objectification that the two of them just had to lay there and be like yeah but what about my elbow people are gonna look at my elbow really closely so that uh yeah it seemed like a, a mind fuck and I think this is the only scene where they're like in sepia tones I don't remember that anywhere else in the film it gave me this weird vibe where I felt like I was watching uh, Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet. I feel nice. like it was like stone Romeo and Juliet vibes with some blue purple nail polish just to make it quintessentially like late 90s, early 2000s. They did have, yeah, the, the purple blue nail polish, which was great, which is how you could distinguish her hand from his. Because yes. another thing that was great about this scene is that with very few exceptions, most of the time, you couldn't always tell in the close-ups whose body was whose. Sometimes you couldn't even yeah. tell what kind of body part it was. So it would take a minute. Yeah, I'm like, what am I looking at? Should I be aroused by that? I'm just going to be aroused by that just in case. Yeah, like, oh, that's that's the fold of a knee. But 
whose knee is it? I don't know. Works from the other way. That's kind of what I do strangely like about the casting of Jennifer Connelly and Jared Leto in this pairing is because they both look very similar in general as people. And I've always had a fascination with couples that look like they might be the same person or related in some capacity. <laughs> Possibly, you know, the incest vibe is just great and strong with these two, but there is just sort of that uncanny valley fascination when two people are intimate and they look very, very similar. And that's what happens with these two a lot because they also have very similar body shapes and structures. So when they're folded next to each other, you're like, oh yeah, you look a lot alike. I'm kind of into that. I always thought that this scene was like the start of the, we're going to get more and more covered with Vaseline. Yeah, we're going to get more and more greasy and sweaty <laughs> yes. from this point forward in the movie. There is no such thing as too greasy. <laughs> or whatever film. it is, glycerin. I don't know what they mm. use. They on use them. a lot they of glycerin generally. Like when yeah. I was doing effects, we always had these bottles that were a mixture of glycerin and purified water that you could just spray an actor down to keep him a little sort of sweaty looking. But when you said too much Vaseline, I immediately went to Burt Reynolds and striptease. <laughs> He's just covered head to toe in Vaseline and those cowboy boots. I got it all over me. I got it down in my toes. <laughs> squishing around in my boots. <laughs> just sniffing that dryer lint. I'm like, yes. <laughs> so I, I take it back. The second... Worst thing about this movie is that Burt Reynolds didn't just magically make an appearance at that debauched... As his character from Strip Yes, <laughs> He needed to be in that debauched heroin-induced orgy scene at the end. I bet he's friends with Big Tim. I bet so he that is. makes it... Yeah, mm-hmm. that makes this, this a unified cinematic universe of Requiem for a Dream, White Chicks, Labyrinth, and Strip Yeah. They are all contained, united by... Requiem for a dream. Yes. It's the alternative to the Tommy Westfall universe theory, but... <laughs> All right, so cutting back Probably to the not. movie. Uh, Sarah is uh, is on a little Eating diet. Eating the most depressing meal ever. Are we not going to talk about the pubes? Oh, do, would you like the to? The appearance of Jennifer... The appearance of Jennifer Connelly's oh, pubes oh, there is, for no particular there reason is that moment, while being yes. depressed and staring in the oh, mirror. Oh, yes. Yeah. We're actually just about to get to that. Okay. Yeah, she stares in the mirror and she has she has a top on, but no bottom. And like the shot cuts off like just as you are seeing Jen's pubes, and you're like, oh, okay, great. And then she does some drugs and feels better about herself. It's a it's a really great shot. But what I really like mm-hmm. about this shot too is yeah. what it's paired with right before is that we have Sarah embarking on her diet, and so Sarah has gotten this diet book from her friends that mm-hmm. just keeps telling her what she can't do, right? It's a book of denial. And so the camera is going to flash in on no sugar, no red meat, no. And then it's just going to cut until it's, she's just focused in on the word no over and over and over Mm -hmm. again. So it's, this is, yeah, all about denial. She's looking at her food. That's this poor, sad little single egg, a poor little grapefruit and a thing of coffee. And that great time-lapse thing that happens, or the time jump, really, with the full egg, and then all of a sudden just eggshells. And then the Mm -hmm. full grapefruit, and then the rind. And she just looks at it very sadly. So Mm -hmm. she's in this sort of denial state, really wants to kind of whittle down. 
Hard cut to Jennifer Connelly looking almost emaciated, staring at herself in a mirror. And so we have that diet denial thing juxtaposed with Jennifer mm. Connelly's body looking in the mirror. And she, too, is not quite satisfied with her own material existence. So whatever it is that Sarah is searching for that she thinks is going to make her happy, Jennifer Connelly has that. She has that body and she's looking for something else. So it's a, it's a great little kind of setup. And we don't see her do drugs in this scene. We just see her look at herself and then kind of raise her arms to the sky. We can tell she ha she's sort of maybe in an altered state, but we don't actually yeah. see her take mm -hmm. anything. I always thought this movie is really interesting because with all the, the food stuff with the mom, this movie can be super fucking triggering for anyone with an eating disorder, by yes. the way. I was watching it and I was like, I know people who should not mm -hmm. fucking watch this. Yeah. Because it would just set off. Oh, but yeah. Yeah. But interesting parallel. That's mm -hmm. the that's the side of the narrative that I I just don't find sexy. And so I get a lot of mixed feelings while watching this film because Sarah's storyline really does touch me in a in a sad way, right? I feel a lot of sympathy and empathy for her character. I don't sexualize anything she's going through. The other three the other three are doing all stuff that I'm like, hell yes. <laughs> so we'll talk about that when it gets to that culmination of back and forth where it's getting these really sad, harrowing images of the shit Sarah's going through. Meanwhile, there's all this like awesome, sweaty, degradation, amputation stuff going on. And I'm like, I don't know whether to be really devastated for the Sarah character or really turned on by what's happening to these other three. And it's a mixed clash of emotions, which is probably why I like this movie so much. But we're not there yet. So back no. to... No. Nobody actually wants to hear about that, but I don't care. I'm going to talk about it anyway. <laughs> so as Sarah so right. is on her diet... Another cool little effect that's going to happen is the fridge is going to haunt Sarah. Oh, and it's going to do it in split screen. <laughs> so <laughs> another split screen, two things that want to connect that just can't quite do it is Sarah and the food in her fridge. And the fridge is going to have this heat effect on it. Mm -hmm. Usually how heat effects are done is you're just going to push Sterno right into the area. And that's like an old music video trick. But what they actually went with here, apparently, um, is that they did wrap the lights. And so they let that heat build <laughs> and, and got it in, wow. in the shot. So that is, that is some real life heat right there that uh, <laughs> is getting shot. I thought that was kind of cool. Also, unrelated to the heat here, but the hydroelectrics on the fridge that are going to later sort of happen that make the fridge kind of jump and bounce towards Sarah in her direction when she's going into a little bit more of her psychosis where mm -hmm. the, the fridge is bouncing, that apparently eventually caught the fridge on fire. <laughs> so they were like, that's that's the end of that. We, we got the shots we needed oh. of the bouncing fridge, and now we, we're out. It's a tough production yeah. in some ways. Oh, this, this production, yeah. Here we were talking about the snowman, how they felt really rushed, and they had from January to April to shoot shit. This film apparently shot 37 days, so it was Fuck. it was tight, and they kept going. They were plowing through. Maybe that explains why there's no address on the letter she goes and drops off in the, the post office box. 
that is a blank ass envelope. <laughs> That's interesting. So she's already, I looked at it, I was like, there's no stamp, there's no writing, we see both sides of it. She's already losing her mind a little bit. Oh, I wonder if that's maybe why mm-hmm. she never got a call back, because yes. she mm. dropped in a blank, I've never noticed that. I watched this movie mm-hmm. five times, did not notice the blank envelope. I'm glad you're here. I did not notice it until this viewing, and I've probably seen this like seven or eight times, mm. but yeah. Interesting. So I was like, oh, mystery solved. Yeah, that is actually <laughs> uh. very curious. Yeah. I don't know why she, because she wasn't at a place where her mind would have been gone yet, right? Well, she just might have been high. Not so much like in psychosis, but just like high and not paying attention to what she's doing. Like you get massively over-caffeinated and you're like, what am I doing? And Where am I going? Seemed oh, like just... all of her friends are really rushing her mm-hmm. to get that thing in the mail. Because as yeah. soon as it came in, they're like, we got to fill this out. Fill it out. That's your name. That's your name. Uh, uh, okay, great. Put in the envelope. I don't give a shit about the envelope. Get it in the mail now. Yeah, that does change the narrative a little bit if that's the mm. case. Because initially, I'm just thinking they send out these things for contestants not everybody gets a call back but if it's on her and the things she's actually been doing to prep to appear on television that actually made her not fill out the form correctly that's really interesting because that's actually where we are now is that Sarah mails the letter that's what happens next so mm-hmm. we once again get that outdoor scene with the ladies and that gradient effect then Harry's back in his apartment waiting for uh, Ty to come back with some drugs. And he looks through the window and- Oh yes. Do you want to talk about the window in the boardwalk? I was I just so much enjoy the visual that this, this gives us of him looking through, looking at, I believe, uh, at, uh, at Marion out there and chasing her, unable to reach her and how it all just dissolves away yet while he's still in that pursuit. Uh, it's just, yeah. Yeah, it's it's good. It is a beautiful shot. That one doesn't damn good dissolve away yet, though. He kind of that one's the one. So there's two boardwalk ones. That one's where he runs Mm. to her and she actually turns around. But then he hears a sound, turns his head, and Tyrone has entered the apartment. And so the the dissolve doesn't quite happen yet in terms of her like just disappearing. Mm. But it's still the rest of the stuff absolutely beautiful mm-hmm. transition to sort of push through that window and just have it out on the boardwalk. This is another real moment or based on a real moment from Darren Aronofsky's life that is not in the book. So he okay. needed a visual representation of people just running for their dreams. And the thing that mm-hmm. he could think of was when he was a young man and he was going to go meet a girl at the end of the boardwalk. And he remembered showing up there and just sort of seeing her on the end of the boardwalk and being filled with so much excitement and hope and that Mm. he decided was going to be his sort of visual metaphor for people kind of racing towards that feeling even though it's of course illusory it's it's gonna slip away a lot of people have experienced that feeling of especially when they were younger right seeing the person that they think in that Romeo and Juliet sort of way, I'm so in love and I would die for this person. And then you go to college and you forget about the person you dated in high school. So it's kind of like, all right. Um, Classic. But yeah, it's that sort of moment, right? Where this is the moment. Then we get back to Sarah still trying to deny herself some food. The food just sort of start appearing to her, apparating in the form of cheeseburgers and cupcakes. Like they're David Lynch's Garbosia or something that's just yeah. coming in and out. 
The uh, burger looked gorgeous. I was actually thinking of uh, train spotting during this scene. <laughs> That's fair, too. I was thinking I'm Twin like, Peaks, but I'm always thinking Twin Peaks. Uh, yeah, I think there's a little bit of, of, of all things in there, yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, train spotting's more of the spot-on addiction thing going on, so mm. there, there's a, an overlap. So she's going to lay in bed and just see cupcakes flying above her head. <laughs> I wonder, because this is before she even gets to the doctor, right? I wonder if she actually is, like, starving herself so much that mm-hmm. she's, like, lightheaded and hallucinating. Yeah. It, right? It could be that would make sense. Yeah, I think light, it's just the diet at this Lightheaded, point. low blood sugar, and mm-hmm. just craving a cupcake yeah. like a motherfucker. Sure. Give me a cupcake. Oh, God, I see them now. Hey, I have problems. Yeah. <laughs> this this movie made me want to eat. Luckily, I ate before I watched. I think it was good we were eating while we were doing this. Uh, or watching yeah. it, so yeah. At least we finished before the, you know, uh, infected yeah. arms. Uh, we go from this to, I believe, we see Marion uh, with some fellow in a restaurant, and you get God, this guy's a fucking sleaze bag. Shrinks. I know shrinks. <laughs> Good God. <laughs> fucking you know? therapist, man. I'm like, is she is she dating a therapist? Don't date a therapist. What the hell's wrong with you? Good lord, they're crazy. They'll read you all the time. <laughs> So the problem is not so much that she's dating a therapist. It's that she's dating her therapist. Her own therapist. That's a big difference, right? Because I, uh, I think all of us here have dated a therapist. <laughs> One we might Maybe. be talking to right now. I don't know. But she's not our therapist. And that's the big difference. No, I keep no. asking, but she won't. <laughs> so, Michelle, would you like to talk about the ethics violation that is dating your therapist? It's just like, it's the only ethics violation you ever see in TV and movies, right? It's like, yeah, fucking with your clients and seducing your clients and getting your clients to, like, blow you. Really, it's bad. Mm. Yeah, no sex with clients. That's bad, huh? I, you know, he's just that generic therapist tool character you see all the time. He's so always, like, middle-aged and white and usually wears a sweater vest. And kind of a dick. Yeah. So I think that's just standard. I thought there was something about her look in this scene that was so classic early, like early aughts. Oh, God, wasn't it Like the mauve brown lip stain. I knew you guys. And the bleach blonde highlights and the dark hair. And the choker. I knew we were going to get a lot of talk about this this look. At some point when she wears, I thought it was later, when I first see her put on that choker, I'm like, somebody's getting a blowjob. That is a blowjob choker. It's happening. I remember. She wears a couple different ribbon chokers. The scene prior to this, before she sees him, I think we get a scene with her talking to Harry, and she has the choker on, and then when we do get to dinner, the choker is, like, a little bit larger, or, like, it looks wider. I'm like, I don't know if that's a continuity error, or there's, like, something metaphorical there, like, the choking is increasing, the the tightening. One of the problems with ribbon chokers, and I can speak at length on this because in the early 2000s, I I wore a lot of ribbon chokers, is that they don't have a lot of structural integrity, so they tend to, like, roll in on themselves. So what might have happened is she kind of, you know, like, laid it back flat, and in a different scene when she was talking and moving around, it rolled back in on itself, so it looked smaller. Ah. I can can think her as, as someone who rocked the ribbon chokers from, like, 93 to 96 really hard Mm -hmm. including some vintage Mm -hmm. velvet ribbon chokers yeah yeah it gets all bent forward or back or tangled or whatever i should really start doing that again (laughs) bring back those ribbon chokers like a hot second and i was like well shit i can keep my ribbon it's it's a really great look so this guy (laughs) that she's at dinner with arnold um her therapist they're at a restaurant called Belvos. It's an actual restaurant. It's a Belgian restaurant in New York that apparently has a really great beer selection. This is going to be another nice. kind of shooting on a budget thing. So 
This <laughs> film was mostly shot on a built set. Sarah's apartment is completely constructed, but outside of that, a lot of the sets that they needed were just, we don't have a lot of money, who will let us shoot where? And if nobody will let us shoot for cheap, let's just grill a sort of camera style it and just go there. So I think Belvis did let them film and they let them film for both of the Dinner with Arnold scenes. And in this first one, the uh, cinematographer talked about the really deliberate seating choices that happen in this restaurant with Arnold sitting on the side of the table where the wall is very close behind him. And then when they turn to Marion, the space behind her is very, very deep. There's kind of the hallway out. And so there's just a lot of space. And they felt that this kind of looked like she had more range of movement that it's sort of the power seating position where she has more power in this first dinner just visually speaking and that becomes very important because in the second dinner they're going to reverse those seats but yo at the moment she's sort of in the power seat with the guy who's playing arnold is apparently the lead dude from pie doesn't look as much like him. He is. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Oh, I can't believe I didn't catch that because there's another return actor from Pi. There are a lot movie. of return actors from Pi listening to the director's commentary. He's like, and that's the next door neighbor from Pi. And that's the mailman from Pi. Yeah, so, the nurse is like, the, and the next scene is like his next door neighbor from yeah, Pi. I so completely missed that. He just really liked the idea of bringing everybody back. But yeah, right on. so far, as many times as Darren Aronofsky has used this, uh, this Pi fellow, Apparently, he's never once let him use his own hair. <laughs> he just keeps putting him into hair and makeup. And he's like, just give him something really unattractive. And so the hair in this scene I'm sure is not his hair. Yeah, I think that that's that's right. Yeah, he had him shave his head. And then in this one, this is <laughs> so, not his hair either. This is something. Shave your head. Now put on his bad now wig. Now put on his bad wig. <laughs> and he's like, this is going to be a thing now. I'm just always going to make you have like really terrible hair whenever I use oh, it. Oh, man. Yeah. yeah. That's right. He played the baby in Mother. Yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> got to use his own hair for that one. That was nice. It's good to see that come full circle. It's just this whole bald theme that we've got going. Yeah, he was just so cute in that. Wanted to eat him up. <laughs> Spoilers for anyone who hasn't seen Mother. Uh, is that a spoiler, though? Because it didn't really make a lot of sense when we said it just now, and it's not going to make a lot of sense when you watch it in Mother, so it's fine. Okay, so now Sarah... Oh, yeah, Sarah goes and gets her pills now. So mm -hmm. yes. this is actually all of the things Sarah has done so far. She has not yet been on pills. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The hallucination of the, the food items has to be <laughs> non-pill related because this is when she gets right. them. Doctor comes in, doesn't even look at her once, which is a really I, great I choice. I noticed that too. I'm like, this guy does not give a shit. He just like, uh-huh, okay. He's like on it, looking at his clipboard the entire time walks in, writes something down. It's like, okay, great, I'll give you some pills. Walks right back out. And she's just like, what, really? That's it? Well, I love when, when he asks, you know, how are you? She answers enormous. And then, you're right. No, no, he never makes eye contact with her, I no. think, in the subsequent no. visits either. I thought that was very classic. Apparently that was one of the harder sort of directions that actor ever received from the director, from a director anywhere, but from Darren Aronofsky was... Do not look at her for this entire scene. Do not look up. Mm. And he was like, that went against every single acting thing we're ever taught. You generally look at the person you're in a scene with. That's, that's sort of a thing, usually. Also, for fun, his name is Dr. Phil. <laughs> How did I miss that? Neither here nor there. <laughs> nice. And so she's going to get a purple, blue, orange, and green set. Purple in the morning, blue in the afternoon, orange in the evening, and green to go to sleep. 
And then she's going to have a whole cha-cha, eat a sandwich, dance montage. It's great. It's like a giant, like, cream cheese bagel, but there's no hole in the middle. It looked delicious. It did look delicious. (laughs) It also was kind of a strange thing, because what's the the psychology here? Did she think, okay, now I have diet pills so I can eat, or? Yeah, so the idea that it would just take care of it. Like, these just speed up your metabolism, so you can do whatever you, you can eat whatever you want. Because your appetite will generally go away. So it's like you're starting to take them. Mm-hmm. It's going to take away your appetite. Just eat what you would want to eat, right? And it'll just keep you from wanting much, much of that. Interesting. So it's almost like a last binge meal. It's kind of like, oh, I'm going to enjoy this. I want it right now. Supposedly, I won't want it tomorrow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Kind of like Marlon Wayans dance moves at the beginning. Her dance moves here are fierce. They're great. Let's get it. She does this little bopping thing, and I'm, I'm digging it. It's super fun. Then we get the hip-hop editing drug sale montage. Do you want to talk about this one? I call this the collage with the montage. But yes, we're getting a lot of them selling uh, selling drugs on the boardwalk, which this movie makes look really easy, I have to say. Uh, it's They're just constantly bringing in $20 bills like over and over again while they're racking it up. Uh, Jen, like, you know, Marion, she is... <laughs> she is uh, uh, putting together like a little artistic uh, collage at her place. My note for this scene was just, everybody is thirsty. <laughs> yeah, well, if you have the drugs, then selling them in Coney Island is not a hardship. Like, that shit right. goes fast. Well, there <laughs> that, you go. That, the science works <laughs> out. Yeah, no, that, that one's fine. Set right up there, young man. How about some heroin? It's heroin. Get your heroin right here, ladies and gentlemen. The one and the only. The smack. The jackety smack. Bring it here right at Coney Island. Yeah, especially in early 2000s Coney Island, there were a lot of junkies lingering around, which will become relevant mm. in in a wee bit here. So we get the the montage. They're they're doing well. They've they've got some stuff and they're they're selling it. And then we get Marlon Wayne's Tyrone sex with girl <laughs> that's my notes sex with girl but you know what's better than sex those mirrors yes yes the mirrors, the mirrors are so she's great she's like come back to bed baby he's like hang on i'm checking out my new mirrors I got... i'm like those are some goddamn good mirrors then holy shit the only thing he has in his room so he has a mattress on the floor he has that fancy ass you probably know what that chair is that black leather chair with like the silver like the very pretty chair and there's nothing else in the room the fun sort of note here with this scene is that apparently they, once again, they were crunched for time trying to sort of get all, all the things shot. And Marlon Wayans was doing this scene very, very serious. He's playing it very straight. And that's not the take we see. The take we see is when he's a little bit, you know, lighter, a little bit more playful. And it was after Darinowski's note when he just felt really rushed and he's like, I didn't know how to express it. So I just told him... Do the next one lighter. Stop acting like a serial killer. <laughs> oh, wow. I'm sure Marlon loved getting that. And note. apparently, like, this became a thing where Marlon Wayans just kept giving him shit afterwards. Where he's like, you said I was acting like a serial killer. This is why I don't do drama, Darren. So apparently, this was his, his serial killer sex scene or his almost serial killer sex scene that oh, sort wow. of uh, did not uh, end up being a serial killer sex scene. We also get this sort of fading into a flashback with his mother. Mm-hmm. So I also watched all the deleted scenes to this movie. Oh, how many deleted scenes are there? Uh, there are not many that actually seem like they were initially in the movie. There were Most of them seem mm. like they were maybe outtakes that okay. they wanted to throw in there for people's viewing pleasure. But sure. one of the ones that did seem like a legitimate deleted scene 
contextualizes his mother a little bit more where it's Tyrone and mm-hmm. Harry back selling drugs on the boardwalk and he mentions that his mother died when he was eight years old and that he's still addicted to the memory of her smell and how she felt holding him. So this is kind of another type of addiction-themed moment Mm -hmm. that he is constantly searching for this sort of feeling again of just maternal love, unconditional love, the feel of protection, all of these things, which we kind of get the sense that whatever is haunting Tyrone or what he's after has something to do with his mother. It seems mostly that he's trying to make something of himself because he promised his mother he would is the narrative we kind of get without this scene about how he he misses her so deeply. But it it seems like a strange thing to actually cut because I think this scene over anything else... It it does seem odd to take that out. I mean, we get... I mean, his character, I think, is good as is in the movie, but that definitely would have add a little bit more because his story is easily the lightest yeah, yeah. in terms mm-hmm. of like you know detail in the whole movie so yeah that's unfortunate they had to cut that scene yes his seems sort of like harry's where it kind of just gets conflated as both of them are pursuing addiction for addiction's sake almost whereas mm. if tyrone's story becomes more of getting high to cover up grief right that becomes yeah. sort of a different narrative and i, I would have liked them to keep that uh, there's a brief scene of uh, Tyrone and Harry on the wharf. Uh, they're chatting, and he's like, "Nah, I got some money now. I need to take care of mom. What's what's mom's fix? I think he literally just says that way. What's mm-hmm. her fix? You know what? She's just watching TV all the time. I'm going to get her TV. And I'm like, okay, great. That'll come into play later. Yeah. Uh, mom is, she's cleaning the house, sweating, just like moving around. We get a like, really cool tracking, fast motion shot. Uh, I, love, uh, I love stuff like that. I'm a big fan of I've been making hyperlapses recently with my camera, so I love this fast motion photography. Yeah, this scene is so great. So Mm. this I also have some some info for. It was a frame a second with an altered shutter is how they kind of went Mm. about it. Mm. The entire take that we get in this collapse is a 40 minute scene. Wow. Wow. That they then, yeah, just kind of hyper collapse and speed up. They did this mm. in two takes, so they just shot it twice to try to get it because 40 minutes yeah. is a really long time for mm. Ellen Burstyn to be cleaning this apartment. So they kind of oh. said that this apartment was, it wasn't even a real apartment, this set was clean by the time that uh, Ellen Burstyn was done because yeah. she's just kind of going mm. in at different rates. Meanwhile, they have the camera on a Milo, and that Milo is set and moved at an automated rate. Mm -hmm. This thing is kind of moving the camera throughout the apartment at a set motion, but the lights, since they wanted to have this feel of the movement of the day and the setting of the sun outside and also just sort of lights clicking on in the apartment, they had a bunch of people that had been choreographed beforehand to be pushing the lights, like, along with... So they kind of staged it out, like, okay, when the Milo's here, like, you guys with the lights need to be here, and when it gets to here, these lights need to be here. And you over there that's going to flip the switch for the lights above the sink, like, you need to do it when the Milo gets here. And so they had that all choreographed, and they did two takes. So it's a pretty amazing scene. Smooth. It's one thing to have, like, you know, the Milo, this, like, automated, like, motion tracking system, to make that smooth motion that's one thing but for crew members to be maneuvering lights right? in a smooth consistent manner them by hand over the course of 40 minutes boggles the mind 
Yeah, no, this scene is incredible when you break it down. And that's kind of the thing for most of this movie, actually. When you break it down scene by scene, it's an incredible work of just production. All of the crew is just bringing it on this film, so... The, the crew brings it, and I would say the actors bring it, because our next shot is this crazy thing where Mar- where Tyrone and his girlfriend are making love, and the camera is down close to them. It's spinning, rotating, and begins moving up and up away from them, mm-hmm. continuing mm-hmm. to spin. I just thought to myself, how many takes did this need? Because, boy, those actors had to like really be comfortable or I hope they were comfortable for I this. I think I remember the director saying that scene took like eight hours to shoot yeah. or something. It was a lot. Uh, now, yes, so Jared, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, Harry uh, goes to see his mother. Uh, Mom is very excited to see him, just like jumping up and down like, Harry, Harry, you came to visit. Oh, it's so good to see you. Oh, you're married. Are you making babies? Make some damn babies, babies. Harry. Grandbabies are the real draw. Yeah, I want grandbabies. Grandbabies are the ultimate draw. Those addictive babies. But no, this scene is heartbreaking. It is. Uh, I What I noticed about watching this scene, um, Darren Afnofsky has a great visual style in this movie, but I think what really sells him to me as like a brilliant director is that he knows when to not use the visual flair that he's been using. Because this scene is a very traditionally shot scene. This is shot, reverse shot, close-ups, medium shots. There's no fisheye lenses here. There's no fast editing or any crazy montage. It's the most traditionally shot scene in the entire movie, and it is the most real scene in Mm -hmm. the entire movie. And it is absolutely heartbreaking from Harry trying to find a way to apologize to his mother for being a bastard to her for so long uh, to Ellen Bernstein. God, I was tearing up listening to her talk about trying to find purpose in life and just saying like, what else have I got? Why should I get up and clean the house? I do it, but why? I need something. I need this show. I need to lose weight because what else have I got? There's nothing. Yes, she has a reason to get up in the morning thinking about Mm -hmm. the TV and the red dress. And so when she sees the sun, she smiles. And it's this really great touching scene. It's also the longest scene. It's 10 minutes in a 100 minute film. And it's also kind of near the center of the film. So it is this culminating Mm -hmm. moment. This is also the scene that Justin kept walking in on three times. And this is the only scene he has seen in Requiem for a Dream in fall. (laughs) And so this to him is what the movie's about. And in a way, it is the film's thesis statement, but it is also kind of its saddest, even with the end and the sort of descent that happens. This is really the emotional heart of the film. Cool lighting stuff going on still, though, Mm -hmm. is that in the beginning of the scene we have the camera coming from the light side of the set and so we see the lit side of their faces and that's deliberate everything's kind of happy for a moment and then the moment that she starts grinding her teeth and harry realizes wait ma you're on uppers is that 
the camera actually does this really interesting kind of pan all the way around and it flips our viewpoint 180 degrees so that we're looking at the darkly lit side of their faces and so it's taking an interesting noir technique right with that sort of half-lit face thing in which you're actually reading the light versus the dark of people's humanity this is sort of a visual rhetoric technique that comes out of film noir and since it was such a yeah sort of reverse a shot reverse shot scene that not a lot else was happening they were like let's really sculpt Mm -hmm. out the story still with some subtle changes to the light and so then after that darkness is revealed that's underlaying this this light of their moment we get one of the few more master shots where it pulls out to them on the side and we get them in silhouette with the light behind them. Mm -hmm. And so we can really see the distance between their bodies and their body language. And when he comes in for that hug, that's just sort of for a second in the silhouette breaking away. And then Harry kind of walks out to exit saying, yeah, you know, I'll bring Marion by. We'll come and have dinner, right? You can make us a roast. So it's, it's once again interesting that... Harry associates his mother with food that she cooks. That that's a comforting yeah. sort of nourishing place, and that's no longer the case because we actually see her offer him a snack. Although she opens her fridge and there's only cream for the coffee or something in it, and she says, "Do you need something to eat? I don't have anything in the house, but I'm sure you know so and so downstairs has something." And so this is a, a very changed atmosphere from what he's probably used to. And then when he goes to leave, there's a really great sound edit where we hear the shutting of the door from one side of the speaker, from the speaker that he kind of exits from. And then from the other speaker, we hear the hum of the fridge click on and start humming. Nice stereo effect there. It's a really cool moment where that finality of he's gone and the fridge starts haunting her once more. It's just a really beautifully done scene to its details. And then Thai drug deal goes down with a deaf drug dealer, which is a cool choice inspired. It's, it, yeah, I thought that was interesting. <laughs> by a conversation that Darren Aronofsky witnessed on the subway between uh-huh. two deaf individuals. Yeah, he's like, I, I need to have this in Requiem somewhere. And this kid who's playing the drug dealer is apparently an 18 year old kid that kind of blew my mind a little bit i was like he's only 18 but he's he rose the ranks fast he was uh so the the real life kid is 18 years old and he is a wrestling champion from a local high school (laughs) oh (laughs) they they brought in and apparently this kid was super excited to get to work in a scene with marlon wayans so oh, that's that, that seemed all cute. I was like, this is such a cute story for uh, a horrific drug deal con wrong scene. But, you know, <laughs> then we get the first of the Snorri cam. Mm, yeah, Snorri cam. The Snorri cam. So the Snorri cam is when they attach it to an actor from oh, the front. Yes. And yeah. we just get I was like, What's this it called? up yeah. close kind of shot mm. of their kind of, yeah, up and close and personal very... POV. It, is, it sounds strange, but it's a very brave thing for an actor to do because to do this, you have to put a very wide-angle lens on an actor, and wide-angle lenses are not flattering at all to the face. So any actor who's, like, image paranoid, 
they will have a very difficult time with that. And mm-hmm. Mo- Marlon, Jennifer Conley, uh, I forget, does just Jared Leto have it on at any point? So everyone except Harry has okay. a snorry cam moment. Harry was supposed to, but they ran out of filming time. So oh. his is not in there, <laughs> but everybody else go. gets one. So. Mm-hmm. And yeah, this drug dealer gets shot in the face. Everybody gets shot in the face. And we get the snorry cam running of Tyrone as mm-hmm. he's just covered in blood and running away from the scene. And then title card, fall. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. So that was the summer. We've reached the end of summer, kids. Fall. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Playtime is over. Ah, uh, yes. Because Is this when the TV arrives at uh, Mom's apartment? I think the TV yeah. arrives around here. Harry comes mm. and bails. I'll just do super quick. Oh. Um, Harry bails yeah. Tyrone out of jail. Because mm-hmm. Tyrone's been arrested for consorting is the charge that they apparently mm. charge him with um, here for being at this drug gone wrong scene. Mm. The character of Big Tim is introduced via Ty, who tells him that, hey, there's no drugs around for miles. There's a war going on, and so they're keeping it down in Florida. Only Big Tim has sort of the hookups, but he only likes pussy. Dude's addicted to the stuff, right? So another little check mark of addiction. Guy will trade drugs for pussy. And this is where I'm like, well, you boys should really, you know, whore yourself out. But to Tyrone's (laughs) credit, he does mention that he offered Big Tim all the pussy he wants, but Tim told Tyrone he wasn't cute enough for him. So, like, that's, <laughs> that was a, a moot dream, apparently, on both Tyrone and my behalf. But <laughs> that's, uh, that was addressed. They're walking along this uh, footpath in Brooklyn that's called the Blue Bridge. It's an actual footbridge <laughs> that is a very dangerous, or was very dangerous back in the early 2000s. The train that goes by behind them is apparently a happy coincidence <laughs> that they were really excited <laughs> that they were filming and the train went by. Then uh, we arrive at the fisheye doctor shot, which I'm sure, Benji, you probably have some shit to say about. Maybe you don't. I don't know. (laughs) Again, like I said, wide angle lenses, not flattering. And Ellen Burstein, you know, it's not as if Ellen Burstein, I think, was worried about looking good in this film because they rough her up in ways beyond imagination. But to have your face that close to a fisheye lens is such a distortion uh, that, of course, works incredibly well for this scene because her world is collapsing in on itself. She doesn't know what's what. Uh, fisheye lenses are also very good for making things seem further away than they really are, uh, which I imagine that's her world right now, too. Uh, the doctor comes in, gives her, I think he just gives her more pills yeah. or something. She tries to tell him, like, something's something's wrong. And she's, like, looking around and very clearly something is wrong. She knows it. We know it. She tries to make the doctor know it. Doctor don't give a shit because this is the American pharmaceutical industry. I did notice that the doctor prescribed her Valium on the the slip of paper. So when she was saying everything's getting all weird, he's like, ah, that's normal. Here, have some Valium. That was his solution. At least they actually call it Valium, unlike the snowman. They had to make up some bullshit, like... (laughs) medication that doesn't exist and like the ingredients are just oh yeah that's valium like just yeah. fucking call it the snowman can do what it wants yeah <laughs> and like valium is a is a benzo so that's there's a couple classes of drugs she could have been put mm-hmm. on to like knock her out and benzos are one of them but valium is certainly the the most well known so the question is whether he's prescribed her two different two different downers to go to sleep right Indeed. or increase this one but there's other things other than uh valium that falls into a benzo but it was the classic what they did mm-hmm. in the 60s when it was like housewives who wanted to le- lose weight. It was like, 
amphetamines in the day and benzos at night and get you like hooked on a, a cycle. Yikes. So that was definitely kind of consistent. And to me, this is where we start to really see the onset of what we call amphetamine-induced psychosis. Yes, oh, I do want to hear about that. Yes. Got the words here, okay. Yeah. That's yeah. why we bring Michelle <laughs> in for these things. She's got the words. If y'all ready for it. <laughs> yeah, so the amphetamines or methamphetamine can do the same thing. They're the same, mm-hmm. they're the same substance, just a slight variation. So, but this is the thing, when it starts, when you start losing contact with reality, it's very acute, it's very short-term. Right. Mm-hmm. The idea that that shouldn't last for days and days and it wouldn't set off like uh, full blown what looks like schizophrenia in the long term unless mm-hmm. you were already you know predisposed for schizophrenia, too. Interesting. Yeah. People tend to recover from this. It tends to be while they're high, maybe mm-hmm. while they're having withdrawal and they tend to bounce back. But yeah, it's totally a syndrome. I would see a little of it not in related to amphetamine psychosis, but cocaine induced because they're both stimulants. Mm-hmm. I would see your folks repeat something similar, but I was going to say, yeah, so you have, you're inhibiting your dopamine a lot. You're fucking that shit up. Um, But I'm trying to think of what the other psychotic symptoms are that we're listing here. I actually found an actual research article. (laughs) Amphetamine-induced psychosis, a separate diagnostic entity or a primary psychosis triggered in the vulnerable. So the big question is, were these people who were already just looking for something to set off kind of a psychosis or really did the drug produce something that otherwise wasn't there? Um, and so that's a huge question. Okay, cool. So I'm going to have a lot of questions about that once we break down what happens okay. to her. So, oh. yes, we'll put we'll put a needle into that, <laughs> as they say, for the, for the drug-induced stuff. Mm-hmm. So Harry tells Marion that she needs to get some money from Arnold because they, they want to buy another big score so that they can sell more drugs. And they don't have money to do it, so she needs to go whore herself yeah. out to her therapist. They got high on their own supply. Did these assholes never see Scarface? Number one rule, you do not get high on your own supply. I swear to God, and don't tell me these guys haven't seen Scarface. I know damn well these two have Scarface. Addiction made him do it, man. Addiction made him do it. <laughs> this is where we're going to go back to Belvos. Um, their seat and power positions are going to be reversed in this take. Mm-hmm. The direction, apparently, here from Aronofsky to Arnold was to just keep eating. Yeah, this guy just eats, and at one point picks his teeth with the knife. Yeah, it's really great and gross, and he just keeps shoveling it in. Apparently this poor guy ate like five steaks (laughs) during this take. A lot of spitting out of food on set, so I (laughs) understand. So uh, they go back, and they have some really great gross sex in a wonderfully (laughs) production-filled apartment where he's got black silk sheets, he has samurai swords above his bed, and he's got his LED light strips on remote control. Super fucking great. And just, in the most ungraceful way possible, starts kissing uh, Marion. And it just, like, the, it's not it's not like it's difficult to look like you're a gross dude when you're kissing a woman in a film, like, if you want to look creepy, but man, does this guy sell it. Because it's like, just grabs her from the back and just begins, like, pushing his mouth on her as if she is just like a thing of meat. Like, and that's, I know that's what they were going for here, but mm-hmm. man, I never like have seen someone just like objectified that quickly. Yeah, he's like a little monkey. He just like wraps himself around her from behind. Meanwhile, Jared Leto or Harry, who has told her we're totally out of stuff. Like what else are we going to do? 
is back for a moment fantasizing jealously about the great sex they're having, but he also shoots up. And so <laughs> that makes him even more of a dick because he just told her, yeah. we're super desperate, we don't got any more stuff, but he apparently has a hidden stash that while she's out fucking this dude, he's going to cut into and sort of say, like, all right, now's the time that I can... We need more heroin. Go fuck this guy for money to buy heroin while I sit here and do heroin. Yeah, it's a, it's a really great douchey detail. It's pretty wonderful. Um, huh? Snorri Cam Marion shot afterwards. Yep. Really wonderful sequence. Heartbreaking to watch. Again, the the Kronos Quartet. This is where I think they reach mm-hmm. their peak. Yeah, I was like, the violinists are killing it. Oh my They're god, murdering the soundtrack. It's so so good. She's coming down the hallway, and if you notice, they have the the neutral filters on every other fluorescent light, so that she's going mm. in and out of these kind of patches of light down a naturally lit hall. Gets into the elevator. It's kind of shot from below since it's the snorri cam and we've got these two men that are just looming behind her in the elevator the lights in the elevator are flickering another apparently deliberate choice um and then she like gets out onto the sidewalk and just vomits right in our faces (laughs) as lightning strikes like there's just light happening everywhere i love that we get like a front snorri cam and back snorri cam on her mm-hmm. oh. when she's walk- when she walks in the elevator suddenly the camera's on her back so we can yeah. see the men that are in there silently judging her for whatever reason it almost feels more threatening to me than judging sort of that mm. she oh, sees yeah. these men um or just men now as these potential lecherous things because every time i watch that scene it just feels very suspenseful. Like, are these two men about to sexually assault her is always the yeah. vibe that I've gotten. But And then it never happens because she's, mm-hmm. she's looking a rough mess. And uh, then where do we go from here? Triple exposure. Um, this kind of cool red dress dance that's happening with Sarah mm-hmm. back at the apartment. And lipstick. Oh. Yeah, and she's putting on the lipstick. It's an overlay. Also, I did not realize this until I, I watched the commentary, but uh, that triple exposure was done on film, so that is not a post-production thing. They, they shot it three times and just over so, like, triple exposure. So, literally had film in the camera, shot it, had to re-crank the film to the exact mm. right spot to expose it again, mm-hmm. shoot, wow. rank it, wow. Yeah. That is so hard to Isn't do. Isn't that great? I mean, and yeah. uh, they wanted to do it that way because the sort of the chemical... Um, process that the film goes through just really lets it have this strange ghostly quality when it's overlaid mm-hmm. in film that you just can't get in post so if you did yeah, if it. you did it in post like it, there was a generation loss in film there so like if you're not working with the original negative ones of the camera there's always going to be like it adds grain to it <laughs> uh, more so than would normally be there and i imagine they were already shooting with a higher speed film that has a naturally intense grain already so yeah they probably couldn't even afford to do that for the sake of the image quality so yeah props that is yeah, it's pretty incredible no and we have to also remember this is 2000 right so the digital mm-hmm. technologies for post-production film editing is not what it's going to be now in 2018 mm-hmm. 19 so you probably could get that look digitally but in the i er- could do that on my phone yeah in the early 2000s that would have looked a lot rougher if they had done it digital so yeah there is something naturalistic about triple exposing the film the grocery store drug buy 
As Marion rips up her apartment. So Marion's going to go crazy. She's going to rip up the apartment looking for more drugs. Meanwhile, Harry and Tyrone are going to go to the grocery store to buy them out of the back. <laughs> That's just, it took me a second to get what was going on because it was just so odd. Uh, when this scene starts up, like, they're opening doors and everyone's like, yay, yay. They're, they're applauding. And then finally we get, like, a guy in a in a truck with briefcases and he's got like rolled up heroin. I'm like, Oh, okay. Huh? Fair enough. Like, guess that's how you do it. So really great stuff about this scene. This was initially slotted to shoot on sort of the Coney Island beach. They did not have enough money to shoot there. They couldn't get permits to do it. And it was too risky to do it kind of gorilla shoot style. So, they found a grocery store that would let them do it, and Darren Aronofsky apparently in his previous work always ended up shooting stuff at grocery stores, so he thought it was kind of thematic. And he told his casting assistant, hey, we want people to just look as authentic as possible. She goes out and she rounds up a bunch of actual junkies from the boardwalk. So everyone in that scene are actual addicts that were on the boardwalk that just got, hey, you want to be in a film? Come on over here. Like Aronofsky was talking about this on the commentary, talking about how it was kind of an interesting night because you've got all of these drug addicts, right? Who's in love with this choice? Really kind of provided this authenticity. But somebody had to do a heroin run in the middle of the shoot. And you had junkies like shooting up off off the side to the set. And then it was the day that Jared Leto had decided to bring his mother and his grandmother to set. (laughs) Yeah, they they had some junkies in the grocery store selling some heroin. And Jared Leto's mom and grandmother were apparently on set to witness it. Yeah, I'm in a movie. This is just a great (laughs) moment in history, I think, that shouldn't be forgotten. Well, suffice to say that this attempt to buy some heroin from the grocery store just doesn't go right. Uh, Fight breaks out. There's some gunshots and they all have to run. And now they're getting desperate. Marion is getting desperate. Harry's getting desperate. Tyrone is getting desperate. They're all just really tense right now. Uh, And his mother begins to take, as I put in my notes, all the pills. I think she pops five pills at one time Mm -hmm. in this. I didn't know if you had any special notes on that one, Dr. Vaughn. Not on the five, but it's clearly like she's really starting to lose touch with reality. Well, she's she's chasing how she was a feel, feeling at the early, you mm-hmm. know, before she developed tolerance, right? She's chasing that high. She's chasing that energy. She's chasing the lift in mood. Usually even the effects on um, appetite are pretty short-lived or a matter of like weeks or months. But yeah, she's starting to, well, you know, how do you show a woman's decompensating? You have her hair all fucked up, right? So she's got, right? The, you know, now it's like her roots are growing out. Everything's fading. She's just so discombobulated. She doesn't really know what's going on. And I think that was like this desperation of, mm-hmm. if I just take more pills, will I feel like how I felt like that first week? Yes. yes. That's tolerance. this yeah. is where, uh, right around this time, this is when mom's reality is really beginning to break down. Because the TV people come to life. Yeah, the best cinematic scene. <laughs> my note, my only note for this scene was just this almost gets silly. Yeah. But a, a lesser movie would have made it really silly. But this one walks the line just the right mm, way for this. So, yeah. why don't you want to take us through what's happening in this scene? Fuck yeah, I do. Okay, so this scene, the Tappy Tibbins hallucination, is a five-minute scene that mm-hmm. initially. <laughs> 
um, had a 56-page brief that went out to all of the departments. <laughs> oh, shit. Everybody okay. had to show up for this scene, right? The lighting and the costuming and the production. So everyone had their notes. And we have Sarah sitting on the chair. She is getting more and more disoriented. And then her TV is going to start coming to life and popping out of the TV First herself, then Taffy Tibbins joins in a um, rotoscoping technique is what they used here um, mm -hmm. with then sort of that pixelated radio looking filter um, into the isolated mm -hmm. rotoscope. And they've got the tower lights on three sides that are initially from the Tappy Tibbins shoot that I guess they hadn't broken down yet, so they put those on three sides. And I guess they had this giant, giant disco ball. You can kind of see the disco ball lights, but I guess this ball was really big. And the light that it was letting off and spinning around the room was so blinding and disorienting that everyone had to close their eyes in between takes because they were getting really nauseous. <laughs> Or nauseated, I guess is the proper term there. So uh, they were getting sort of disoriented from how bright and dizzying these these disco ball lights were. But it just added to the experience, you know. I think it was around this time that the fridge got fire. Yeah. One of the things interesting is they literally only spend like, I think it's like a 10 or 15 seconds when she actually gets the dress on. Mm -hmm. she's, she's approaching it, she's approaching it. And then the whole rest of the movie, until like the very last scene you see her, she never takes off the red dress. Yep. It just gets increasingly like hanging off her because this is and so yeah she's sleeping in it yeah at this point you can tell that's part of that disintegration it's like she's reached her goal and she's so out of it she doesn't even realize she's wearing the red dress yeah absolutely Ugh. so this is the yeah the point of breaking she gets freaked out about this understandably runs out of the room um the tv is just kind of off on that rainbow screen or whatever behind her the apartment's quiet and dark and she Winter. <laughs> Title card, winter. Well, this, winter. Is, this is what I wonder what's going on, right? Because she's having that full-out hallucination. I don't know if she ever turned the, t the new TV on. Yeah, I don't is know that either. entirely? That's true. Because yeah. when we see it in the house and she's looking at it in the corner, mm -hmm. it's completely still. Nothing's on. Yeah. So to my idea, she's having full, you know, acute psychosis, hallucinations, like seeing your dead husband. I mean, she starts that when the, the sun comes back and the whole scene about the dinner and she starts talking about her dead husband like he's gonna be there at the game show. Mm -hmm. The way she talks about it is if, mm -hmm. as if he's still living, mm -hmm. and we never see the son's real reaction to that at all. And like you know, hallucinating this other version of yourself that's like evil mm -hmm. um, as well, and the kind of persecution complex that comes with like um, you know amphetamine um, induced psychosis and paranoia. Mm -hmm. So is this level of a hallucination <laughs> something that one can get with? amphetamine psychosis or how does how does this trip compare it's possible but it's definitely like the extreme end i've certainly heard this more in like cocaine induced psychosis for like no 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 the aliens are coming for me and i had this elaborate six hour hallucination so there there is some some symptoms you can get usually it's auditory hallucinations more rarely is it visual mm -hmm. hallucinations when you're having this psychotic episode from basically being highly intoxicated on amphetamines. Um, I'm just going to say the other things that tend to go with that. But yeah, so they say it depends on, you know, what study and all that, but that folks who are regularly using uh, amphetamines can have psychotic symptoms up to 50% of the time. Like up to 50% of users will have uh, an episode. So that's entirely plausible as she's having really disjointed experiences with reality. 
And they talk more about auditory hallucinations are way more common. So certainly hearing things would be mm-hmm. linked to that. It'd be set off by a really intense binge of amphetamines that would kind of leave it off. Yeah. So um, lack of concentration. So hard time staying focused. Delusions of persecution. So she does have like the evil her is after her mm-hmm. at some point with that. Um, disorganized thoughts. Evil hot So her. not being able to. Yeah. She's really hot uh, in her of- alternate reality. <laughs> Yeah. So it's like the hot version of her. She mm-hmm. what she wishes would happen, but that that version of her hates her and is like keeping her from all these things. High anxiety, highly suspicious, and then a, a few things have suggested maybe in extreme cases you can get visual hallucinations and grandiosity where you think like you're God or you think you're you know a movie star. So you see a little blend of that. It's in the wheelhouse, right? And I guess she also has some sleep deprivation and starvation mixed in along with this. I don't know how that alters stuff. So that's actually one of the things they mention is how much do you separate when you have people doing that much speed or that much amphetamines? Um, They're usually chronically sleep deprived. Mm -hmm. And that is that partially accounting for the hallucinations because that will make you hallucinate. If you go a couple days without sleep, pretty much everybody will hallucinate Mm -hmm. to some extent, right? So they can't differentiate whether it's caused by the amphetamines or caused by the sleep deprivation. But yeah, so we need a controlled kind of... study where we just sleep uh-huh. deprive people <laughs> for a really long time and yeah. see what happens. And the idea is like to get the level of amphetamine in your body, like the high enough repeated dose, it would be the point where you couldn't sleep through it. So <laughs> it's kind of you can't you can't have that intense high without sleep depriving because they would come down from the high if you put them on bed. So, so. Yeah. so she's going through some uh-huh. stuff and yes. then winter has come. Winter has come, and it's time to go to sunny Florida. Yeah. That's right. Lots of stuff is going to happen really, really quickly. Tyrone and Harry, they're going to go on a fun buddy road trip. It's going to be a grand old time. Grand old time. I just wanted to say that I'm pretty sure the fridge says the phrase, feed me, Sarah, like it's it's Seymour. Oh, I first, yeah, I did it like, like, feed me. Feed me, Sarah. And I was like, oh my God, it's it's a Venus flytrap and it's eating her. That's awesome. I never noticed that before. Suddenly, Sarah. Yes. So So she's, girl's hungry Mm -hmm. and she's going to walk down the street in a cool composite shot. She's going to get on a train to try to go find Madison Avenue really fun note about this train scene is that another thing they didn't have money to shoot on public transit in a paid way and so they took a skeleton crew and Ellen Burstyn out to (laughs) a train at like 2 or 3 in the morning that was going to one of the more dangerous parts of Brooklyn and they just filmed this scene Yeah, I'm not surprised because the people on the train give her about as much attention as actual New Yorkers would give a woman like this on the subway. Super great. Love it. Um, She goes to the Madison Avenue TV station. She tells them she's going to be on TV, has a breakdown. They call the paramedics and the psych police who come and take her away. Harry and Ty shoot up in a car on their way to Florida. and And we've... We've got glimpses of this, but there's a problem with Harry's arm. Yeah. And this, personally for me, this is something that kind of sent a chill down my spine to look at. Because, fun fact about my poor college days is I gave plasma. (laughs) And when you give plasma, typically they will draw it from the same spot. And to this day, I still have a scar on my inner elbow where they were always putting the needle and when I saw this, ah, it was horrifying to look at because I did 
when I was younger and giving plasma, had nightmares about like the scar just becoming this weird permanent hole in my arm that blood would just continually come from. So yeah, body horror like this, boy, that that hits Ben in a big bad way. Yeah. <laughs> so it's fun. I mean, I'm happy to see it, and it's effective. So my applause there, but. Oh boy, yeah, that's some body horror that gets me in a weird way. Meanwhile, I've recreated this like three or five times for a Halloween costume. I've seen it. I remember that. True (laughs) story. That was the first Halloween. That was the first Halloween party I threw that you came to. Yeah, Yeah. because I love body horror like this, especially (laughs) because this is some really easy practical effects to do when... You're a, you're a blood and guts and bruises person. And so I'm like, yeah, let's let's pump up those veins. So, yeah, I've been Jared Leto Requiem for Dream heroin addict multiple times. So it's a Not fun sure costume. This is what I hear, though. I hear that it's much more common that heroin addicts will, I guess, when it completely doesn't work, when you can't get high from it, they'll, like, start to su- search, uh, search for other places. To yeah. Shoot up, right. Like between your toes mm-hmm. and like. In your genitals and whatever you got, hey. right? But I don't think he got that desperate because it was still working, right? He was still Apparently, able to yeah. shoot up through it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Although then we've got Tyrone who's looking at him saying, yeah, maybe don't shoot up in that. And Harry's like, no, I'm going to do it though. And so Ty is like, let's, let's take you to the hospital. And he does. And, and this is another kind of confusing scene for me that they get to the hospital and... The doctor comes to see Harry, and Harry's like, it's my arm, man, and he just pulls up the rotting flesh of Mm -hmm. his arm underneath his little thermal, and the doctor looks shocked, like he's never seen a heroin addict before in, like, 1999. I'm like, where have you been, buddy? (laughs) But, Uh so, he at least knows enough about them to kind of just take the morphine or whatever is kind of on the tray next to him just pocket like i'm just gonna take these with me and i'll be right back and he goes and he gets the police apparently because the next time we see them both tyrone and harry have been arrested and so this is my question is he not under some sort of obligation to treat him and his arm because this arm goes untreated for a while he's like i'm just gonna arrest you yeah here's the deal so the idea of like hey there's a suspicion. I mean, in in the hospital, in the ER, if they go and drug test you and you're high right now and it's something illegal, they could like handcuff you to the, the police could come and handcuff you to the bed, mm-hmm. right? Um, but like, they would at least evaluate you for safety, right? They would at least bandage it up, clean it off and bandage it up once they hand you handcuffed to the bed yeah. and then go, oh, can we take you and, and you know what we need? We need an ER nurse present, and I had one, but we could we could have called the former ER nurses into this call and say, "How does that work?" Yeah, that's my understanding. Yeah, because it does Damn seem it. like they're under some sort of legal or at least ethical yeah. obligation to give this dude some antibiotics or something. But they just arrest yeah, at him. Least, yeah. Also, every at least clean it. Yeah. Every addict I've known that's still in the presence of mind to drive to a hospital is generally in the presence of mind to not stick away around and wait for their friend in the waiting room. So I was curious as to why Ty (laughs) is just sort of doped up and hanging out in the chair in the waiting room. I'm like, dude, you gotta go. (laughs) Get out of there. Don't wait in the car. It's okay. Yeah, I I did want to mention that prior to this hospital scene, when he shoots up, this is, I mentioned this earlier, this is the only time in the movie we see a needle actually entering an Mm -hmm. arm. And I think it is wonderfully appropriate that the one time we see this for real happening is when it's happening to his horribly diseased, rotting arm. Yes. Like, see, kids? See? Dare won't show you this stuff, but we will. Yes. We'll show you the real deal. Great. 
And wouldn't that technically be ne- necrosis? I believe like what that's we're what's seeing happening, there is, yeah. Yeah, he's actually, you know, the vein is dying and it's actually, like, yeah, borderline rotting. Yeah, it's great. And so he doesn't get treated. He just gets thrown in prison. Yes. But so they, uh, yeah, they get sent to some sort of prison in whatever state, I guess, that they had made it to. And uh, meanwhile, we've got Sarah. She's been sent to the psychiatric center. She's being force-fed different types of food. We get the the nasal feeding tube at one point, and that's a, a pretty harrowing sort of scene. Yeah, this is not what you they can do to you. Like this, this I know. I've never worked in inpatient settings, but the idea that they were cuffing her was kind of bizarre because she hasn't done anything violent or aggressive. You're. It's not legal for them to secure to to cuff you ever especially this time if you go back 30 or 40 years mm-hmm. like this isn't one flew, flew over the cuckoo's next <laughs> but yeah i mean they're doing it for dramatic effect and then they were holding her nose while force feeding her to try to force her to swallow that's like fucked up elder abuse right there that's oh. it is but at the same time <laughs> i kind of remember variant cases <laughs> reading about that of people who went through eating disorder treatments in state psychiatric centers when they were older and this dehumanization that generally happens when you're a little bit out of it um, and aren't able to kind of stand up or stick up for yourselves. And I have had like friends with eating disorders that have been force fed in hospitals and that, I don't know if there was restraint involved. It certainly wouldn't have been handcuffs. It would have been more hospital yeah. restraints. But And that's the deal is just because she's she's thin underweight doesn't mean she has an eating disorder. I mean, they would have to determine that, like, she was going to die and she refused to eat. Once she's off the amphetamines, her appetite would return. Well, we have seen her. Maybe they were just like, we need to get some nutrients yeah. in this uh, yeah. chick stat. Because Give her an IV. we haven't seen yeah. her eat anything in months. So. Yeah. <laughs> So it was just weird, like you rather than, you know, at least the the um, the nasal tube kind of made sense. If she was so Mm -hmm. out of it, if she's so disoriented that she doesn't get that she needs to Mm -hmm. eat, maybe. But yeah, that was. But that is an interesting point that I hadn't really thought about the difference between whether or not she has an eating disorder or just a stimulant addiction that's taken Mm -hmm. away. Because it does to me, the narrative does sort of read in some way just subconsciously as she's depriving herself food and she's searching for all the ways in which she can deprive herself food. So since that stimulant addiction stemmed from her desire to deprive herself the intake of food reads to always just read to me as a viewer as an eating disorder. But I guess the other is kind of uh, yeah, non-confirmed. Yeah, it doesn't. It's not that way because you have to go. You have to uh, you have to. Um, do a rule out. You have to say, is there any other explanation for her behavior, right? You don't di- diagnose somebody with just typical mm-hmm. anorexia neurosa if it's due to a cocaine addiction. Yeah, it's a different it's code. True. It's a different thing, right? It looks the same. You're absolutely right. It looks the same. Well, it's just like, yeah, they um, wouldn't know, yeah. right, that she initially started all of these stimulants so that she could not eat. Because she was sort of depriving herself food for months before yeah. she what? developed a stimulant addiction. It's weird, usually depriving yourself of food. Like that language, it, like in mental health, means you're doing it very intentionally and deliberately and willfully versus she might not remember she needs to eat. If she really is having this extended psychotic mm-hmm. episode, she might not remember she needs food. She might not remember who she is. Mm-hmm. But then they also have her sign her own release to, to consent to what's about to come, which you couldn't do if you're claiming somebody's psychotic and they're out of their mind and they can't feed themselves and they're in imminent danger. Then they couldn't, they couldn't, <laughs> Consent 
the shit getting real here in a second. Yeah. yeah. The so. cool thing, too, about, like, the camera work here is that they do a really heavy cam where the cam keeps slipping down to the doctor's sort of lower half mm -hmm. of the face. So she can't fully focus, right? It's sort of her POV. Mm -hmm. She can't fully focus on his face. But every time he mentions a drug is when the camera slips back up. Those uh -huh. are the few times she's managed manages to see his full face as if he mentions a drug. Wow. It's really cool very small little okay. effect so yeah i thought that was kind of fun um yeah so yeah we've got this really ethically compromised uh <laughs> sort of breakdown here the uh they decide that she is not responding to anything that she's blown out of her mind and needs ect therapy so i'm gonna no. i'm gonna ask you some questions about that in a bit yes. and then we're gonna overlay this with just Tyrone being berated in prison and he's just there's a lot of racism that he's dealing with there's also just a lot of dehumanization of the prison system and there's the scene like so all these scenes are going to just be cut together really rapidly flashing back and forth and the guy that is just berating Tyrone in prison is played by Hubert Shelby Jr., the writer of ah, Wrecker and Bridge Dreams. So they just oh, thought that, that was... heard he did a cameo yeah, somewhere that in this was thing. His cameo I was, where it was, was just to berate his own characters for being dope fiends, <laughs> which they thought was kind of cute. And then uh, we get Harry, that his arm has finally been noticed um, as a problem, and so he gets taken to the hospital, and that arm gets amputated. Meanwhile, Marion has decided oh, to call Big Tim for some pussy for drugs exchange oh, we we had the earlier scene right where she shows up at keith david's and he's like made marion <laughs> marion made marion oh god keith david is i'll talk about this later but he is terrifying in this movie like, he's great I rarely ever see him they have like in that first meeting they have one of the most awkward kisses i oh. think has ever been committed to film it's like like the lips are making the the uh -huh. movement and shape of a kiss, but every other cell <laughs> of her skin and face is revolting backwards away yeah. from from Big Tim. This guy's legit though. He's on the level. He knows what the deal is. He's yeah. like, hey, I will trade you some heroin for pussy. This is, he is what it is. He's not honest. So uh, that first meet is also where we get the whole thing. He fumbles at his belt, and we don't see obviously him actually do it, but makes her look down and says, "Look, I know it's big, but I didn't take it out for air." Yeah. Like. So yeah, she uh, she shows back up for a party <laughs> that he had invited mm -hmm. her to. Well, there is, there is a scene between this that I think is very touching where uh, she gets a call from Harry while he's in jail mm -hmm. and they have, like I would say, like a shared self-delusional moment where she says, can you come back today? Yeah. Yeah, I'll, I'll come back today. Oh. Hey, Marion, I'm sorry. And that that's it. God, it's just a heartbreaking <laughs> scene. But this scene, also another scene that's not in the book, because in the mm -hmm. book, Marion and Harry just sort of drift apart and they do not interact oh. in winter oh. at all. And oh. a lot of the test audiences, even with the initial stuff, were like, we really feel like these two characters need to interact in winter. And so they, they had this telephone call that I guess the three of them, Jared Leto, Jennifer Connelly, and Darren Aronofsky, 
wrote together and then they went off to separate ends of the soundstage and they got two cameras and they had them actually call each other on the telephone and they filmed them both simultaneously. So that is an actual telephone conversation that is taking place, which is very unusual in movies. Usually you're you're talking to no one, but they actually were talking to each other, just them. So, uh, but Marion will pay a second visit to Big Tim's. Yeah, she will. And there's a party going on at Big Tim's. Yeah, there is. This is their gentleman. Made Marion. <laughs> oh God, he's talking with the voice. And the, ah, yeah, he is. Ah. Oh, but um, they. It's it's a what? Kind of, how would you describe this party, London? A debauched, drug-induced bacchanalian orgy of fun. Just a grand old time. Just grand old bring the family spank grandma around kind of Saturday nights, you know? <laughs> Once again, totally on the level. Like, she's trading mm-hmm. some pussy for heroin. Like, this is a straight-up deal. And mm-hmm. what they want her to do for it is a little ass-to-ass, super-lubed dildo action. It was nice that they had a lot of lube going on there. So <laughs> Yeah, it's... respect there. What's fascinating to me is that, you know, at first she's just kind of making out with the other women or they're grinding together, and one of them who, in a weird moment, when Michelle and I are watching this, I think, who'd you say you thought it was? You thought there was a woman in Julianne there, Moore? Like, because I thought it was Julianne yes. Moore. Yes, <laughs> it looks like Julianne Moore. What's yeah. up with that? I didn't check it. I was it's like, not. I did check it. I no. got right on IMDb, yeah. and I was like, is Julianne Moore randomly in an ass-to-ass dildo? No. Like, it's probably an adult them. film star that plays Julianne mm. Moore, and like, let's let's recreate the movie. Oh, that'd be nice. Porn. That's what I'm thinking. Hmm? But yeah, no, she totally looked like Julianne Moore. The this this woman who is not Julianne Moore just asked, "So, what do you guys think we should do next?" And there's just some random old guy, you know, sitting front row, who oh. he's just excited and just out of nowhere says, "Ass to ass." Yes, I think that's another crew cameo, but I can't remember which one. So yeah, they take out a big old dildo and they're they're going at it. This is mm-hmm. the one main scene that was edited out in the R-rated version. Was a couple yeah. of the more "quote unquote" graphic shots of the ass to ass dildo. <laughs> I, I love that you have to like say "quote unquote" because just to specify, just to clarify to you, this is not graphic. Yeah, exactly. It, it's not. I mean, <laughs> they are. There are two people simulating some mm-hmm. ass-to-ass dildo sex. It's not even actually happening, so it's not graphic no. because it doesn't even exist. But <laughs> yeah. it is a sad commentary on the state of the American censorship system that out of all the things in this movie, <laughs> that they're like, no, we just can't show the ass-to-ass dildo, man. That's too much. <laughs> Taking it too far. I I will confess that when we used to watch large segments of this film Mm -hmm. in my undergrad drug and behavior course, um, I would try to pinpoint when I was going to stop the Mm -hmm. DVD because I don't want to be the one. I don't want to be the one professor that's like, she showed us ass to ass in class. It wasn't even a sex class. So, yeah. you know, I'm trying to think if I've ever That's showed my, guilt- my students an ass to ass scene. I don't know, probably. You've gotten- but everybody knew what happened after it. Everyone had seen the movie, they're like, we yeah. know what happens next. And somebody like mouthed yeah. ass to ass in class. Considering so. that you've gotten feedback from students that critiqued you for showing your shoulders yes. in class, uh-huh. this is understandably a thing you would not show in class. Yeah. 
ass to ass. That was the undergrad. Stuff. In the class to class. The grad, the grad school, the grad students in general down. But mm-hmm. yeah, the undergrads. Right on. That's fair. So, yeah, we'll move past all the inappropriate shit that's probably come up in any of my classes. So, (laughs) the the ass to ass scene transpires, and then everyone kind of has the the Cronus Quartet. Clint Mansell music is just it's that winter's overture, right? It is swelling Mm. and orchestrating all of these rapid cuts. And it culminates where everyone's getting things shoved in their mouths, which is kind of interesting. Like, Sarah has, like, the bite guard. Ty is going to vomit um, because he's going through withdrawals and and he's mixing up his little mashed potatoes and he's going to throw up in them. Um, While Hubert Shelby Jr. is just berating him, Harry is going to get, like, the blood from his amputation just squirting up into his mouth, and then Jennifer Conley's going to get $1 bills just shoved into her tongue. And so it's just this, yeah, montage of all the shit. And then afterwards... They're all getting fed in some way. Yeah. Like, is, is that, like, a weird... It's so great. Freudian oral fixation. <laughs> so this is going to be one of two things that kind of ties these guys' narratives together visually. It's going to be this kind of mouth shot... And then the aftermath of everybody's stuff where they just kind of come back to their beds and curl up into a fetal position. Um, so Jennifer Connelly is going to come back the morning after. She's got her little dope in its little paper bag and she's going to clutch it to her chest and smile and then curl into a fetal position on the couch. Apparently, she was the first one to shoot her sort of scene. And she just chose to do this with her body, to just kind of curl into mm. herself. And Darren Aronofsky was like, I love it. Everybody, we're going to do that. Um, so right, it's nice. Connolly's acting choice that actually mm. is the genesis of what really is, I think, a very impactful moment of tying this narrative together when then we get Tyrone right coming back to the prison um, bed and just curling up into a little field position, thinking about his mom and... Harry waking up without an arm and curling up in that hospital bed. And then Sarah, who smiles because she kind of is a little bit still lost in her own world, curling up into her hospital bed while her friends who have come to visit her just sob on a park bench. It's Her friends are actually, their reactions are really, really touching and effective, I think. And then Sarah has her vision of Harry and coming on to the Tappy Tibbins show, and he's got his hair all combed over a nice little 1950s good boy cut, and he hugs his mother, and it's like, I love you, Mom, right? And it's like, nope, this is, uh, this is a cute fantasy to end on because that shit never happened. Apparently, this was the first shot of the film outside of the Tappy Tibbins stuff that they did shoot for the film, was this happy embrace of Mm. Harry and Sarah and strangely apparently the last shot they shot was the balcony POV shot of the ass to ass dildo stuff because that was yeah that was just a late night shoot they were finishing it up and the cinematographer mentioned that that one shot because I guess that whole you know scene was the last thing they shot but the very last uh thing they shot was the POV balcony scene End on a high note, you know? Yeah, that's that's kind of the journey, I guess. Is, and yeah. that's a wrap, everybody. Go ahead and get your clothes back on. From a hug. Yeah, <laughs> I was going to say, that just seems like a really weird last shot. So I, I don't know that for sure, but that's what the cinematographer kind of, you know, threw out there and mentioned. But 
And uh, that's that's your for the dream. The dreams are dead. All the dreams are dead. <laughs> oh, oh boy. There is no requiem for that dream. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. Oh, 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 what a journey that was. So what do we got uh, drug-wise still? What, what do we need to know about oh. addiction? Yeah, we could talk a little bit about... Um, we could talk about the effectiveness of electroconvulsive therapy and mm. persistent methamphetamine psychosis. Yes, thank you. I did want to ask you that. <laughs> so, Dr. V with the words other, again. What other questions mm-hmm. y'all have? So, I, uh, so this... Yeah, yeah, yeah the fuck. That's, that's the question. Yeah, the fuck, the fuck right? <laughs> so, like, this is the classic movie thing. It's like, if you want to show something really graphic and violent about mental health or, you know, abuse of folks um, labeled as crazy, you, like, give them ECT, right? So I would, like... I watched this and I was like, what the fuck? They don't give ECT for people with psychosis, especially not in the last couple of decades. I mean, they used to give it just to everybody because they didn't have anything else, right? They didn't have any drugs. I mean, they do for severe like, depression, like right? Yes, that and that works. But I was like, this has got to be bullshit. Um, I Googled it and the article's from 2015. Mm-hmm. So at the point of the movie, it might've been total bullshit. Um, but at least there was a pilot study trying to see if it... Uh, made a difference for folks who like over a month still had psychosis from Mm -hmm. amphetamines um, when they paired it with other medication and it didn't make it better than just the medications Mm -hmm. alone. But the fact that that had been something people were trying Mm -hmm. and they cite several previous like little case examples, but it doesn't work. (laughs) But it doesn't seem to work for Sarah either. Right. (laughs) Yeah. 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 And bilateral too. So the idea is um, really in the past 20 or 30 years, they stop doing one on each side, like mm-hmm. giving you a shock from both sides of your brain because it fucks up your memory more and it isn't more effective. Interesting. And the bilateral is what they mentioned in this article, and that's what they show her. But they fucking sedate you when they do that, right? So the thing that that's, was interesting yeah. that I did, that Aronofsky did mention, was yeah. that he, in preparation to kind of film these scenes or whatever. And this mm-hmm. also is based off of the book. So I do think the ECT might be from the book from the 70s. So that might oh. kind of change some stuff too. And sure. he went to different places. Like he watched some ECT stuff being done oh. um, in order yeah. to recreate that. He also went to some drug for sex parties to see what happened <laughs> there. And so his kind of, he wasn't super graphic um, in the way that he talked about it, but he just kind of mentioned, he's like, well, when people sort of watch the the sex, the, the sex scene or whatever is happening at, at yeah. um, Big Tim's and say, you're, you're going a little overboard. That's a little dramatic. He's like, believe me, the shit that I saw at these parties, like, this is just some ass ass dildo stuff, guys. This is nothing. Um, and he kind of had that sort of uh, reaction, too, with a little bit of the ECT stuff, because yeah. it seemed to affect him whatever he witnessed, where he's like, the shit that I saw in the treatment of these yeah. patients. No, I, I, I toned that shit down. So I don't know what he where he went and what he yeah. witnessed and, like, why he witnessed it for, but I do think it's probably a combo of a still yeah. trying to stay true to this is what happened in a 70s novel to this character mm-hmm. and then um yeah but it didn't work so it's interesting that thank you for looking up those uh, research sure. that that was actually something was... that's been done that's fascinating yeah they've done it and it's back and forth mm-hmm. but it's always like one study found this one person and it seemed to help them and then when they look it together it doesn't um but that's the one thing that um i mean if you have a really shitty ass psychiatric hospital and they're like doing the most horrible, you know, things that would get a giant mm-hmm. expose. This is plausible. It's like worst case scenario. But yeah, and, and 
I haven't heard for decades of folks giving ECT without a sedative. Mm -hmm. But the rest of it and what it looks like and the mouth guard and all of that kind of piece and them kind of trying to Mm -hmm. hold you down to keep you safe, that does. That's something that totally would have happened in the 70s, by the way. So So, at the time of the book, I don't know if they, they didn't have a treatment, you know, they didn't have a, they weren't necessarily testing it out for amphetamine psychosis, but it's kind of like combining Mm -hmm. the two together in a way that I'm like, okay, that's kind of, it's not completely Mm -hmm. off the deep end and just made up to make pretty. Mm -hmm. It's just the worst case scenario of everything and kind of combining it together. Bang the horror and like what can happen to you. You can Mm -hmm. never get your mind back from like diet pills, from something your doctor gave you Mm -hmm. that you took 90% of that time you took as prescribed. I think that's, Mm -hmm. I kind of love the horror of that. That is horrible. Because it's, yeah. So is, is that something that's plausible, that type of complete descent oh, yeah. from diet pills? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Like the way they show, like at first, you know, at first you're, you're, you're getting high, you're feeling great, you're having all these outcomes you want. And then over the matter of weeks or months, suddenly it's just not working and you just get desperate and you just do more. And you start like losing it and you don't mm-hmm. even remember what you're doing and you start losing touch with reality. And the idea that it happens over several seasons mm-hmm. I thought that was entirely plausible and very realistic. Um, that time for, you know, when you're first shooting up heroin to when it can fucking take your arm. I don't know what the ETA on that is. I don't know what the typical timeline for how does it destroy your body. Probably depends um, but, on what kind of smack it is and how much you're pumping in there on sure. the daily. But, you know. Yeah. How infected your needles are and all that shit. But I kind of love that it wasn't this all happened in a month. Mm hmm. I felt like that was that realistic. It's slowly creeping up on you and it's slowly overtaking you as a metaphor for like addiction and you don't even see it coming. Mm-hmm. One time it's all fun and party and it's all good. And then you're like, what the fuck happened to me? <laughs> Who am I? I thought that was on it for addiction. Yeah. So when you teach this in your classes, how do your students generally respond to this film? Um... From what I remember, because it's been a couple of years, it's been now three years since I've, I've taught a class about drugs or addiction. Taught, well, a lot of them have heard heard of it or watched it. That gets less common in the mind. They're, they're really struck by the visuals of mm-hmm. it. They really want to know what's accurate, what isn't. Uh, I thought it was really well depicted. And, and, you know, that idea of asking students, what does this look? They want to know what it looks like, what it feels like. You want to give them that sense of it, but without like, hey, go do some drugs this weekend mm-hmm. or for back. So I thought it was really illustrative. And I love the comparison between street drugs and things you know are super bad and super mm-hmm. dangerous. And like your, your mom taking some pills because she wants to lose weight. I love both of them together that they both, it both had this devastating impact, mm-hmm. right? That they both became like dependent on the substances. Yo, I um, did notice that uh, they have <laughs> Harry and Ty use heroin intravenously and then whatever Marion's using she's snorting yeah. so she yeah. doesn't shoot up at all through mm-hmm. the movie and so that kind of changes shit a little bit yeah so that's the weird thing is like snorting heroin this might be I'm remembering for another famous movie when somebody thought they were getting cocaine and they snorted heroin <laughs> Pulp Fiction oh uh, yeah the Pulp Fiction thing um, yeah I think it I don't think people intend to snort heroin right. so I'm wondering if there's that's the one thing that didn't track for me. Yeah, because Marion might die. actually yeah. be um, a cocaine user, if I remember yeah. from the book. So she might not actually be on the same stuff that uh, Harry and Ty are. Yeah, because she gets, like, light and flow. There's sometimes where she's, like, slowed down. But we see, like, with her, she's designing clothes and all that kind of piece. It, it was more consistent with a stimulant. Mm-hmm. Right? It was more consistent with cocaine. Yeah, I think I remember her being a yeah. coke person in the yeah. book. 
There's also with Harry in the book a ambiguity in the text as to whether or not he dies because we get that second oh. pursuit of uh, her on the boardwalk, Marion on the boardwalk, running in the film and sort of falling off beside. And Aronofsky had to ask Shelby, does does Harry die <laughs> from this yeah. infection or does does he wake back up? And Shelby's response was, of course he lives. He has to suffer more. <laughs> so, Oh, fuck. Shelby, yeah, I was, a bitter old bastard. No, Shelby seems actually like a that really was, sweet guy. That was always on my mind when I saw this, probably like the second time, is like mm-hmm. what I imagine happens next to them. Mm-hmm. Like what I what I imagine the continuation of their story is. What is that? Um, we, well, it was interesting. So for, for the mom, I always felt like, that's it. They've done everything they could do. She's been in that persistent psychosis. Like, it seems like she's been in the hospital and they've been doing everything they think and nothing mm-hmm. makes a difference for weeks. She's done. Yeah. Her mind's not coming back. Like, she's just going to be permanently hospitalized in this kind of... Um, Although she weirdly site, you know. seems kind of happy there. Yeah, so it's like, what well, is yeah. she... Is, maybe she's the one who's not suffering. Out of all of them, she's the suffering the least because she's caught permanently in her delusion. People are paying attention to me now. Yeah. I'm popular. Yeah. She has that haunting here. smile when she is yeah. in the hospital bed right before she curls into the fetal position where she's yeah. in her little dream state. Her mm-hmm. her dream came as true as it could because she's stuck there. Gotcha. So I don't know. Yeah. yeah, I think she was just, you know, done, but like no longer really in touch with and aware. Like mm-hmm. I didn't think there was any coming back for her. Um, I always had this weird sense of um, hopefulness for the one who's like, hey, uh, I didn't blow up my arm. Like, my arm's gone. I'm just in jail for a while, mm-hmm. right? And if you got jail for possession, I don't know how much. But, like, his withdrawals are almost done at that point. Mm-hmm. He's been in, like, withdrawals for, for heroin are lasting a couple days. Interesting. After you get through that and you feel sick as a, you feel like you're going to die, but mm-hmm. heroin withdrawals can't kill you. Really? You just feel like you want to die. Oh, I could, yeah, I definitely see that character. And he stopped. Yeah. He could, he could. Yeah, I have hope mm-hmm. for him. Tyrone, yeah, he probably yeah, served his time, got into jail, and then decided to turn his life around, got into law enforcement, reunited with his long-lost brother, became FBI agents, and then one day they had to dress up as white chicks. Yeah. 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 And drew from this oh, harrowing yeah. experience. Yeah. Also, to do something Cruz even more horrifying. Yes. Yeah. But, yeah, I think yeah. Tyrone is the one who ends the book, and mm. he is the more hopeful really? story. So, And even right Aronofsky on. in the commentary did mention that for him, Tyrone's the only one that has a shot here in the future of, yeah. of kind of pulling it together because Connolly's also I, there's it's not a yeah, zero sum chance, her. but she's yeah. she's just starting on her path to rock bottom. Yeah. She hasn't even hit rock bottom yet, probably. That was always my sense. I wanted to see the sequel with her mm-hmm. journey, and like because that's always felt too is like wait she's having a hard time, but it's not the same. Mm-hmm. Quite this, yeah. She has further to go. Absolutely. And so, sudden instead of a sequel, if I was going to remake this movie, I do think, going back to the beginning of the Jared Leto, Jennifer Connelly role switch, I, I honestly do think there would be something interesting in seeing a sort of Harry's journey as one that leads to kind of prostitution 
and that kind of sort of exchange addiction, especially if he's identifying as a straight man that then sort of has to engage in behavior that really is so far removed from what he would pursue otherwise sexually in order to get this fixed would be a really interesting kind of complex narrative that Connolly, with her fashion career and her design and that focus that she has on her body throughout it to end up going through various sort of alterations to that body with amputation and also we don't necessarily always see that kind of storyline of intravenous drug use and amputation going to a more female character and then i would also like to see sarah and tyrone's narratives flip to see how that plays out where you have a younger character that is for some reason becomes focused on this sort of like fame and then the body image that comes with it right and might get hooked on on something and then if sarah at her age ended up with this kind of derogatory prison experience that would be kind of interesting too so i think that the narratives that are told are the most common ones for each of their individual demographics but i would be curious to see what would come if they sort of shuffled those up a little bit because I think those are still kind of stories that would still feel real but they'd also just bring something different to it I don't know but either way yeah I'm with you there's there's not a lot of hope here nor is there supposed to be yeah and this is why this film had a really hard time getting released no production (laughs) studios wanted to back this movie Aronofsky and some of his kind of producing partners ended up having to raise the money by themselves to shoot this film. That's why a lot of it is done kind of gorilla shot style, like let's just show up on the subway at 3 a.m. Then when they were shopping it around, I'm trying to remember, it's a thousand words pictures, I think. Ben J. Dino? Yeah, a thousand words. Um, were the one company that saw potential in it and backed it for its release after it was made. So. Yeah, that's what I was wondering, because the distribution, like, I remember hearing about this. I remember being like, this is this is really interesting and fucked up. Let's go do this. I feel like it got a lot of publicity and it got a lot of buzz when it came out. Mm-hmm. That, you know, that I, I don't know what it was. I had to look up the box office and stuff, but I feel like right from the get-go, it got that mm-hmm. interest as being something really unique. Well, it was such a weird movie for the time because it does yeah. so many experimental things with the language of cinema. There's just mm-hmm. so many very quick edits. There's that almost classical score of the music mixed with the hip-hop editing. I I just saw you guys react with some faces. Bad. Bad box office. 7.4 million. Box office. Eh. (laughs) (laughs) Even in 2000. That's pretty shit. I mean, I don't think it... I saw it at the Independent Film House. I was going to say, it it didn't really get a major theater Mm -hmm. release, I don't think, so I'm not surprised that it didn't make a lot at movie theaters. Well, that is why, you know, it's a ballsy move to release something without a a rating because most major, you know, like AMC theaters, they're not going to carry something that doesn't have a rating Mm -hmm. on it. And certainly won't carry like an NC-17 film. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. And it premiered at Cannes, but Mm -hmm. it was out of competition entry, so I'm guessing it wasn't like officially considered for things i've never heard that phrase. Well, what can compete with this you know? yeah I, I just don't know what that means that's too easy they're obviously like no no that, I'll, I'll get the palm door another time guys this yeah. is too easy i'm in the league yeah. of my own which <laughs> in a way he is so yeah it is kind of fascinating that aronofsky has had the career that he has had because he hasn't made very many movies and all of the ones he has are very interesting and 
largely these kind of works of art, mother excluded. And (laughs) 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 he just keeps doing these things that really for most people seem like they would be career enders. (laughs) And yet they, they keep going, especially after the fountain. Like everyone is like, yeah, his career is done. Like who comes back from the fountain? But nobody even remembers the fountain and he goes on. So he's a, he's an experimental dude, but Mm-hmm. He has talked a lot about how he does see himself as an expressionist that lets the story tell him what kind of visual language to create. So each of his films are very different in their style because the narrative is different. And that's yeah. really cool, especially since there's definitely a big difference between something like Requiem for a Dream and his visual style in The Wrestler, uh, which is... I want to say documentary style, but even that's too polished. Uh, the Wrestler is such a gritty, dirty film uh, compared, like compared to anything else that he's done. Uh, and then you have the visual style of what he does in Noah, which is so out there. And I really enjoyed Noah. I remember going to see that film with a friend of mine. He's like, "Yeah, this is an equal opportunity if offender. If you're an atheist who's like looking for a secular retelling of Noah, you're not going to get it. If you're a Christian who's wanting like a nice biblical telling of the story, you're not going to get that either." Interesting. I haven't seen Noah yet, so I can't comment. It's, it's I give it. It's worth a watch. It's interesting. So perhaps with the praise of uh, Aronofsky, it's time for uh-huh. the top five. Indeed. Uh, do you want to go first? So I will give a. An honorable mention to the trio, which is Harry, Ty, and Marion. Mm-hmm. They all did great. They all kind of pulled their equal weight, I felt. And yet, number five comes in at Taffy Tibbins. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, I don't know if this is like, you've uh, clearly explored the DVD a lot at this point. I remember, the first thing I remember about hearing about this DVD is that it revealed a hidden thing in the film because in like the tippy tippins we keep hearing him say like these are the three things that are going to change your life number one no red meat that drives people crazy number two no refined sugar yeah number three this is the one this is the one that makes it happen and then we never hear it yeah this is the one <laughs> that I always... a lot of people yeah. yeah and is it Somewhere in the DVD features, it reveals that hidden third thing. Do you know what it is? No, I guess I need to go back and pound those features. Okay, (laughs) apparently somewhere in the DVD, you have to really dig into it, but it says that third thing, no orgasms. Oh my goodness. Okay, so I did not find that in the features, but I did find that uh, apparently Jared Leto was dating Cameron Diaz at the time of filming this movie, and Aronofsky told him to withhold having sex from her so that he could understand what addiction felt like. (laughs) So not only don't have sex for a month, Mm -hmm. but don't have sex for a month when you could be having sex with who is considered currently the hottest woman on the planet so this also seemed like a dick thing to do to cameron diaz because she didn't sign up for this shit so i don't know (laughs) if he actually adhered to that but part of me is also thinking oh shit aronofsky is jared leto's out of control method acting ways like your fault is this the genesis right here when you Mm -hmm. said in order to do this right you need to in your personal life withhold and withdraw and suffer 
Okay, that's a thing mm-hmm. he's doing to himself and to one other person. That doesn't translate to send your co-stars in Suicide Squad dead rats. That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> but as we see, addiction grows, Benji. <laughs> it gets more severe, and he's addicted to the method. <laughs> yeah. It's like a behavioral addiction that is not, it's a not uh, otherwise specified. But It's not a substance. Yes, but Tappy Tibbins, like, he's just fucking bringing it. Like, mm-hmm. every time, ta- just the mantra and whatever, it's like, juice by Tappy, juice, juice, juice. And, like, oh, that was so weird. It's so great. Like, yeah. everything about the Tappy Tibbins just brings so much to the narrative. And, yeah, our Tappy Tibbins fellow, he just, he's selling it. It just seems like an infomercial, and it's a bright light of weird throughout this film that i he's just essential i need him well uh okay so my number five and then i also say my honorable my honorable mention uh will be keith david yeah uh <laughs> because i mean i haven't i obviously have not seen every film that he's ever been in what's wrong with you yeah i know right <laughs> But most of the films I've seen him in, like, you know, Keith David is a guy who can play someone very intimidating. Like, you know, that voice of his, like, will shut, you know, just shatter you to your bones. But very often the characters that he plays, this element of his performance is kind of done in a way that's, like, fun or comedic or, you know, not necessarily even that. But, like, there are movies that are not meant to scare you or anything like that. You know, his work in, uh, well, like, They Live or uh, or The Thing He's a guy you're rooting for. You're not supposed to be intimidated by him. Uh, in Community, he you know plays a wonderfully comedic character who is like just kind of a gruff and doesn't take shit from anybody kind of guy, older gentleman. But at the same time, it's fun. You know, you have a good time with it. But here, he is he is allowed to be utterly terrifying in every way possible. Like the way that he he smiles with this shitting grin, and the way that he just like sneers at like. Uh, at Jennifer Connelly in those scenes, the way that he kisses her is so creepy. And he just has to talk just a little bit to frighten you to your bones. Like even on the phone call when he just says like, yes, come on by. Like, ah, oh, geez. Yeah, I that think is... the whole thing is just totally hot. Actually, mm-hmm. his voice, yeah, it can be so both. charismatic. That's true. But when you... The scene with him fades out and then he just does that laugh, like that very <laughs> resignating laugh. So I remember back yeah. when MP3s were just starting to be sort of a thing <laughs> that you could then turn into <laughs> cell phone rings mm-hmm. and sort of text uh, yes. So My cell phone in college, when anybody called it, would have the isolated audio of Keith David's laugh from Why Requiem for a Dream. <laughs> wow. So I know that laugh well, because for, for like about a year, like anytime anybody called oh. me, like that laugh would just filter into the room and it made me so happy. Oh, God. So, yeah. Uh, my, number, my number five is the Cronus Quartet. Fuck yeah. Uh, for bringing this music. The music in this movie is not only so effective, but it... It in a way became like the the main motif of this film. The lead motif of this film became like a standard because it would show up in trailers and in other movies. Uh, there is a version of like the trailer for the two ta- Lord of the Rings, the Two Towers, that uses the main theme from this film. <laughs> like I gotta that vaguely remember that. How, yeah, that that's how intense this music was, and there. 
so there are some like composers and directors who say that the the best film score is the one that you don't even hear you don't even pay attention to which that Untrue. the whole like that concept of the best version is the one you don't even notice i think is true of something like editing lighting cinematography like if it's done right you you're not thinking about it at any point but in this case i am thinking about it and it works and it it enhances the film rather than just dis- rather than distract them yeah this whole film is kind of like that where it takes all of the things that shouldn't necessarily be seen and thus are good and just mm. puts them on display because they're so good that you can't help but notice them such as the soundtrack and the editing and the lighting like everything is just very visual like you feel the production in this film but because it's so good <laughs> So it does kind of invert a lot of our expectations on invisibility. My You're number four. Number four is Ellen Burstyn. All right. Because she's amazing in this. Mm-hmm. Every scene, she's just the best person in it. And the range of human emotion that she not only could exhibit, but make me feel while watching this. Yeah. Is just, yeah. She she gets all the props. Mm-hmm. All of them. Uh, yes. Well, my number four my number four is Marlon Wayans. Uh just because it was really great to see him in a dramatic film and see him do well with it. You know, I wish he had done more stuff like this. I know that his uh you know, nowadays he kind of just he'll sporadically do a few films here and there, and they're more the the Wayne's brothers comedic style spoof films and what have you, you know, scary movie. Um, haunted house, that sort of thing. And if he's having fun making them, all the power to him. From what little I've seen, his current work is not very good. Uh, My number three is the editor, Jay Rabinowitz. Okay. Mm. As I I just mentioned, the production, the editing in this film is, Mm. there's a lot of it. First yes. of all, so this was a lot of work for. Uh, yeah, I think the stats I saw on that were that a movie of this length would typically have about six to eight hundred cuts. This movie has two thousand cuts. Oh, yeah. Jesus. Or somewhere around that. It's much. a rapid, high octane ride, and all the cuts they pair well. Mm-hmm. They're they're very visual. Um, so as as mentioned, generally not something people want to notice is the editing until you get the sort of new school that we largely credit um, Fight Club for first and mm. foremost in terms of this new school of rapid editing but he yeah he brings his own style to that so love it I just get really excited by the editing every time I watch this great uh, my number three I will say is uh, Jennifer Conley that's because mm-hmm. I really I do appreciate I know, saying that an actor is brave is almost cliche, but I I do appreciate that she was willing to put herself in some very unflattering uh, spots in this movie. Um, I really, I kind of forget like what her career was looking like in the late 2000s, but I don't think she was really known for taking on very dramatic roles like this or very hardcore, you know, very hard to watch uh, kind of work. So I really like that she was willing to go for it here and that she really did put her all on it. Um, and again, it's just physically impossible to make her look mm-hmm. bad. So, you know, good good job on just somehow always looking great, <laughs> Jennifer Connelly. 
my number two is a a kind of t not really tie but like the partnership of Darren Aronofsky and Matthew Lebatique, um, the cinematographer, mm. and the yeah the gel filters in this like the editing. This movie would be nothing without its its light sculpting, mm. and yeah, the, the sheer amount of gel filters that are on this film is kind of astounding. I almost wanted to leave Matthew Libatique off because he also was the cinematographer for A Star Is Born, and I have never hated the camera work more in a movie. But he makes it up with his work on Requiem for a Dream, so it balances out. Right on. I'll say that my number two is like a tie between that and Jared Leto, uh, who I do appreciate very much in this film. Like I, I said at the top, like. I, I was a little confused by his accent towards the beginning of the mm -hmm. thing, but like that was such a minor thing at first. Like after a while, I just didn't notice, and I loved that he really was bringing his all. Mm -hmm. And now that I know that he had to abstain from sex, I knew I had heard that he had asked like uh, you know Marlon Wayans and Jared Leto to abstain from sex and sugar for thirty days so they could know what a craving was. But now that I know he was abstaining from sex with Cameron Diaz, <laughs> I don't know what kind of award you give that, but that deserves something. I feel like Cameron Diaz deserves an honorable shout out if she had to go for 30 days without sex and she wasn't even on the goddamn movie. Uh, number one, Clint Mansell, Coronas Quartet. This mm. movie is the music to me. It is, it is in the title. It is a requiem, right? This film is a sonic composite of emotion and visual stuff set to music. And so... The music is everything. I did hear, uh, apparently Aronofsky in his commentary talked about how he initially wanted to set this all to um, a hip-hop soundtrack because he grew up in Brooklyn with a lot of hip-hop and instead he settled for the, the hip-hop editing techniques and realized that the this classical kind of composition fit the film a little bit better once he sort of handed it over to the Cronus Quartet and Clint Mansell and they came back with, no, you, you should really put this in your movie. Mm -hmm. So they, they set the tone there. Sounds right. I know who your number one is. <laughs> well, my number one is is uh, Ellen Bernstein. Our number one and number four were reversed, interestingly enough. Yeah, I think there's a reason for that that she's very that at the top of my list and that is like kind of a personal thing the character that she plays is very similar to what i saw my maternal grandmother go through uh late in her life when she had friends all of her friends had passed away uh, and every time that i went to visit her as she was growing older and older i saw more of an emptiness you know and a vacancy there not from dementia or alzheimer's or any disease of that sort but just from an apathy at the world that had passed her by. And looking back on it, you know, in her final days, I didn't know what to do with that. And I wish I had. So Ellen Bernstein, this movie, just she shows a side of it that I, I wish more people understood. And is that's not something that you see very often in film. So I just applaud everything that she brought to it. I applaud Darren Aronofsky for wanting to really highlight it. Uh, it sounds cheap to say that like pop culture is like what programs us to ignore this, but this isn't something that is represented in pop culture because there's no profit in it. I mean, mm -hmm. it's a time when you feel like the world goes, you know, like the Ferengis from Star Trek and like can't even imagine you if you do not show a profit to them. 
Is that a Deep Space Nine reference? You I had to. I, I, I wanted to lighten it up. A you little nerd. Bit, you know? <laughs> I'm getting a little real here. I wanted to kind of want to bring a little, well, little Star Trek levity to it. You know? First of all, only Benji could bring down a conversation on Requiem for a Dream. Secondly... <laughs> hey, I helped. I supported that a little bit. I'm like, yeah, you're right. This is heavy shit. Sarah was a very hard role, apparently, to cast where most of the actresses, they threw it at first, refused to do it, and didn't want to do it. So Alan Bernstein eventually stepped up and said, and she was reluctant too, and she read the script, but then she watched Pi and said, okay, I think this this director might be able to do something with this. So she sort of entrusted him to do it. But I, yeah, I had read that most of the actresses uh, did not want to touch this, much like the studios. Mm-hmm. So she was mm-hmm. very, huh. a brave, great performance why the she was the only actor that really made my my top five list because this movie to me is a production it, it's a crew movie um mm-hmm. but i mean you know you know me i always go more towards the crew prop side and you always go more to the actor side you and your that's true your acting accolade <laughs> ways but so how cruel is this movie oh the correct amount, <laughs> the correct amount. <laughs> i can't put a number to that but it's the it is the correct amount of cruel. Is that a qualitative, not a quantitative? It's, kind of, yeah, it's, it's usually quantitative, but... Oh, okay. We often like talk about our masochist scale oh. and, and all that, and, you know, on a scale of 1 to 10. Honestly, I would say this film is a 10, and that's a good thing. Mm. I'm the wrong audience to judge cruelty on this one, because mm. as I mentioned, like, I find most of it really attractive. Um, but I'm the kind of sadist that really likes dehumanization and degradation, and I also like amputation. So you throw all this shit at me. Uh-huh. And I'm and like, I'm, like, this is a one, baby. I'm this like, I'm getting beautiful. a lot of feelings, and it's set to like a really beautiful visual Ooh, piece. So. I say that amputation gave me the vapors. <laughs> I, I mean, I would have liked a, a little bit differently shot that one but that's okay like it's <laughs> the arm is gone and that's what matters too quick. Yeah. what are they cutting away for you're getting to the best part it's so my, my my inner london voice which has accumulated over the years is like i feel like what she wanted is then like who fucks the the dismembered arm that comes off of that that's what she wanted to see next i mean you're not wrong <laughs> I, I don't or know who that has actually dawned on me, but now that, that you hand, say it, you're not wrong. Yeah. yeah, where, where did that arm t- go? <laughs> who has that t- arm Maybe now? not a remake, but like if you're going to do a special edition to this movie, like, you know, Star Wars Special Edition, Requiem for a Dream, the special edition, mm-hmm. how do you remake that one scene of the oh, of the amputation? Wait, so what are the cri- what's the criteria here? You are, like I said, we're not remaking this film. Uh, but Darren Aronofsky has gone full George Lucas and he's going to re-release this into theaters. <laughs> you know, Requiem for a Dream, st- like the special edition with unnecessary <laughs> extra special effects and added scenes that were clearly not supposed to be there ever. What do you do to the amputation scene for the special edition? Well, apparently if we're going to go the George Lucas route, we're going to set it during some sort of like disco laser light show that's happening. <laughs> and Tappy Tibbins is back in the operating room and he's actually uh-huh. the one that's somehow amputating this arm and the disco ball is going and his mother's dancing around. And you're like, this is a bit extra. We don't need it. Um, but how I would in my Cronenbergian ways rework this scene is, yeah, then we have like the spinoff series of the arm that somehow anthropomorphized in its <laughs> in its entitlement it's like the thing suddenly from adam's okay. family 
and it, it. it's still addicted, right? But it's also <laughs> slowly dying. And so it's just going to kind of pull itself across the landscape of Coney Island, just looking to score. And it's just going to be a short film about this amputated, drug-addicted arm looking for some dope. <laughs> Ten oh, minutes funny. tops, but it'd be fun. So I, I would say then that that short film is just inserted into Requiem for a Dream. And the, the movie just stops for 10 minutes while we follow this drug-addicted arm crawling through the wilderness trying to get that thing. No, I think that's the post-credits thing, actually. So like oh, the film okay, rolls, yeah. the, the credits roll in the silence, <laughs> and then afterwards you have this 10-minute just like journey of the arm. Not not even post credits, mid credits, because most people like you know nowadays a lot of people know like yeah there's something going to be at the end credits, but they often will put mid credits you know sequences in there for the people who are like are just getting up to leave. Yeah, put it in there. They've already like gotten up. They're starting to walk over. Like oh oh there's there's a, there's something else. Let's just sit down really quick and and watch what's happening. Ten minutes later, what the hell was that? <laughs> so yeah, overall the cruelty scale for this for me is like a two, three, mm-hmm. just because I, I do find Sarah's narrative to be very, very heartbreaking and wrenching. It really brings down mm. the high of an otherwise <laughs> super fun film, but, <laughs> but she's still great, so it's fine. Um, all right, so on, on that note... <laughs> Would you recommend this film to a friend one? Absolutely. I think anybody who likes cinema should at least see this once. I will agree. I think as Michelle mentioned, uh, I would I would want to know. It's, it's tricky, as you said. This is not a film you would you should show to anyone with an eating disorder. True. Yeah, informed consent. They should right. know what's happening because it will yeah. like fuck up your yeah your your. your I, I might have been teaching lectures on uh, I, yeah. predictions of eating disorders two weeks ago, so yeah. I'm like, oh Jesus. I would, I would be careful. I don't really know the right way to like say, hey, there's this film you should watch. Uh, BT Dubs, you have an eating disorder? Yeah. Just like informed consent. Right, right, right. right. There's yeah. some fucked up food, food stuff and binge eating stuff and hyper focus yeah. on body stuff. Yeah, like, so it's like, would I recommend this film to a friend? Yes, but there's an asterisk next to that. You know? <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, London. God, we've we've talked about this movie, the, the bleakness of this film, how it strangely turns you on in some ways. I discussed a dead grandmother. Man, uh, what do we need? What do we need to get out of this? <laughs> well, I think first of all, we'll thank Michelle for, for joining us here today. And uh, we will go and try to seek out something perhaps with a little bit more optimism. For those Yay! of you who apparently are weird and don't get off on intravenal drug use and S to S dildo prostitution. Mind always look on the bright side of life. Come on. Always look on the right side of life. For life is quite absurd and death's the final word. You must always face the curtain with a bow. Forget about your sin. Give the audience a grin. Enjoy it. It's your last chance anyhow. So always look on the bright side of death. Just before you draw your terminal breath. 
Life's a piece of shit when you look at it. Life's a laugh and death's a joke, it's true. You'll see it's all a show. Keep them laughing as you go. Just remember that the last laugh is on you. And always look on the bright side of life. Always look on the right side of life. Always look on the bright side of life. I'm escaping to the one place that hasn't been corrupted by capitalism. Space!